Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Are you ready, my brothers and sisters, for the inaugural episode of the daytime drama of a Freedom Main Radio call-in show more friendly to people outside of North America? Yes, it is 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, New York time. We are doing a call-in show on Tuesdays. Are we going to keep it up? Who knows? But, and rightly or wrongly, good or bad, we just have such a backlog of people who want to chat that we... Listen, as always, we are your slaves, but with, uh, I guess, slightly fewer than seven veils for the dance routine. And so we're going to do a daytime call-in show on Tuesday, starting at 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, a little bit more friendly to those of us across the pond or those of you across the pond. So uh, check it out. Hope you like it. Uh, I think it went very well. What a show we had today. So first was a lengthy chat with a fine young man and fine young woman who are objectivists and want to know why objectivists and libertarians and so on dislike Donald Trump so much. It was a long conversation, but it is a very big and deep topic. So we did that. Then we had a gentleman calling in from Europe saying, don't give up on us, bro, and um, wants to know if I've given up on Europe and its future, and if so, why, and if not, why not? We had a good chat about that. And um, ever wondered... How to date white girls if you're non-white? Well, our third caller might be able to help you. He is a dating coach, a relationship expert who wants to know how he can promote interracial dating. So we had, well, we had an interaction on that topic, which I hope that you'll enjoy. I know I certainly found it enlightening. And number four, the fourth caller lives in Hong Kong a free, economically free country, but he's noticing quite an absence of interest in philosophy and virtue and, well, pretty much depth of any kind. And we explored some of the cultural reasons behind that, which I thought was just plain fascinating. FDRURL.com slash donate. FreeDomainRadio.com slash donate. Come on, come on, do it, do it, do it. Help us out. You know you need to, you know you want to, you know there's nothing else like this, and without your support, it just can't keep going. FreedomMainRadio.com slash donate. Sign up. 20 bucks a month. It's less than a coffee every two days. You can do it. FDRURL.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link, which is also very much appreciated. Please share around FDRPodcasts.com. Like, subscribe, share, get the word out. I can't do it alone. I need you. Tuesday, during the day. Here we go. All right. Well, first today, we have Carter and Katrina. From our observations, Ted Cruz is receiving significant support from the objectivist online community. Some say they support him because, while flawed, he's still the most principled pro-freedom candidate available. Others explicitly support him only because he's not Donald Trump. This is coming from a community that has historically identified religion as the gravest threat to the culture to the point that key objectivist intellectuals endorsed voting Democrat in 2004 and 2008. Yet now, the Republicans have a viable non-religious candidate. Trump has morphed into the new gravest threat to America. The mental gymnastics we've seen to justify this position have been truly astounding and suggest some visceral emotion is driving the anti-Trump slash pro-Cruz response. As longtime objectivists ourselves... It's disturbing to us to see this coming from a community with a professed commitment to reason. 
What do you think is at the root of this response to Trump? And what does it mean for the hope of turning the culture war toward true commitment to reason? That's from Carter and Katrina. Well, hi, guys. How are you doing today? Hey. Good morning. We're well. Happy you to are be the, here. You are the first callers on, I guess, um, the Desperate Housewife daytime show of Free Domain Radio. So, uh, milestone, milestone. So, can you tell me a little bit more? I'm having a little trouble understanding why, if the objectivists are anti-religious, why they'd have anything to do with Ted Cruz, who's quite the holy roller, uh, and not with Donald Trump, uh, who I think his favorite Bible verse was copyright zero uh, on the Bible. Uh, but um, I, I don't know. Uh, um, you know I, I don't think that <laughs> I, don't think Trump, I don't think Trump darkens the door of a church all too much. He's a sort of Ben Franklin style religious person, which is like, oh, fine, I guess I have to say it. Better. Whereas Ted Cruz, uh, you know, his uh, his father said that he was anointed to to rule the world and appointed by God and all kinds of crazy stuff when Ted Cruz was growing up. So help me understand how the is it the anti-religious elements are separate from the pro Ted Cruz elements? No. Well, to some extent, I mean, so we've been trying to sort this out ourselves. And what seems to be weird is um, they they really don't they don't seem to care about anything he's done and they cherry pick stuff that he says. And we, I just read an article recently that uh, by an objectivist all about how he was the most constitutional, like he was the, he was the protector of the constitution because he talks about the constitution more than Ted or more than uh, Donald Trump does. Um, so there's, there's like a, a faction of them that are very excited that he talks about the constitution, but, uh, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I don't think that has anything to do with the hatred of, of Trump. I think that's just a justification for why they like Cruz. I think, I, I suspect, I don't know, Katrina, I, I don't know what you think. I suspect that it's all actually just hatred of Trump and they just find reasons to support Cruz because he's not Trump, but. I think so. I mean, earlier in the primary, there was a still a split, right? There was about half liked Rubio and half liked Cruz, and everyone was sort of taking their time, throwing their full weight behind any particular candidate, um, probably to wait and see who would still be viable. Uh, but you know, as soon as Rubio was out, a hundred percent of the pro Rubio guys went over to Cruz, and it's people that I've seen historically pick massive fights over abortion and over gay rights and say extremely strongly worded uh, things toward religious people. And, you know, if you're if you're against abortion, then you view women literally as chattel and blah, 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 blah. And then now Cruz is OK. Yeah, not as only is he OK. He's also like if they're not even just saying he's OK, they're advocating Cruz explicitly. And it's so, we've been involved in the objectivist movement for quite some time. So we like, we know a lot of the people who are names that people would know who write major articles and, you know, speak at conferences and stuff. And it's, it's these people who have become just almost irrationally, well, yeah, I, I hesitate to use the word, but I'll use it I, like irrationally anti-Trump to the point where we can't even have a conversation. We had someone over um, my house the other day who we had I hadn't seen in, I don't know, 10 years. He's a professor of philosophy. I really love the guy, but 
we had a hard time having any kind of rational discussion because there was just a lot of emotion about how could you like Trump? He's a disgrace and he's uh, violent and oh yeah. Um, before we know. even got to Carter's house, the the guy was full on yelling at me, telling me that I am a thug because I think that Michelle Fields should grow a backbone. <laughs> oh no, they're not bringing up the Michelle Fields thing, are they? Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, huh. Because you know, non initiation of force and all, <laughs> except for you know. Okay, just just briefly. Just hang on, hang on, just briefly for those who, who may be listening, uh, who've been following this or not following this. Couple of updates on the Michelle Fields thing. First of all, Michelle Fields' mom is an anti-Trump, pro-immigration advocate. That that's her gig, that's her job, that's her thing, and that that's that's sort of important. Uh, n- number two, it doesn't appear that Michelle Fields was wearing her press credentials when she started grabbing at. Donald Trump. Big no-no. I mean, it's a no-no either way, but if you don't even have your press credentials on. And uh, number three, her boyfriend appears to have tried to use some family connections in order to get the police to uh, press charges against Corey Lewandowski. So this is an entirely manufactured, in my opinion, it's an entirely manufactured slander. And... um you know, as Judge Napolitano has pointed out, the law is not supposed to concern itself with trifles like you were moved out of the way of a presidential candidate when you invaded a space. And there is apparently audio now, uh, as the videos are sort of pouring in, there's audio of the Secret Service ordering her to move back twice, and she's still in there grabbing away at Donald Trump. So I think that's becoming an increasingly tough narrative to sustain. But of course, the purpose, and this is what happens when people have a prejudice, Right. When people, they, they, people have an, an emotional reaction to Donald Trump for reasons we can get into in a bit, but they have an emotional reaction. And then what they do is they seek and search around for empirical excuses to justify their anti-Trump, uh, anti-Trump emotions. Right. And so this, and this is what the media is continually doing. Hey, do you dislike Donald Trump? We're going to make up some negative shit, which you can use to justify your dislike of Donald Trump. Now that, of course, is the opposite of philosophy. Philosophy is if you are pro something, you should really challenge your uh, perspectives on that. You should challenge your emotional bias. And of course, emotions are not tools of cognition. Emotions are not tools of cognition. That's a foundational principle of um, objectivism. And um, so I just, I think it's, I mean, the fact that they bring up the Michelle Fields things means that they swallowed the bait that the mainstream media lowered into the um, water so that they could justify their negative emotions. What's truly ironic, what's truly ironic and and horrible about this, which I'm sure you guys are very aware of, is the spreading of negative disinformation about Donald Trump in order to justify people's negative reactions to him is exactly, exactly how... Ayn Rand was excluded from the mainstream discourse in society. You just spread negative, horrible things about her, and then nobody has to take her seriously because they can just pin these negative things on her. uh, And um, that way they never have to engage with her ideas because they can just justify their anti-objectivist bigotry with reference to, you know, the same old stupid stuff that floats around 
about Ayn Rand. Um, you know, she was a fascist. She was a racist. She was this. She was that. She took Social Security. She, whatever, right? I mean, she referred to Native Americans this way and Palestinians this way and blah, 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 blah. Like nobody else has ever done that or even made mistakes, right? So you have the standard of massive perfection. And then you find any sunspots on the sun and say it's exactly the same as interstellar space. So it's just kind of ironic that objectivists who rail against the mischaracterization and disinformation about Ayn Rand should then turn from exactly the same mainstream media that spreads that disinformation and assume that they're being completely honest about Donald Trump. I mean, that's that's so insane that uh, it uh, it takes a real set of emotional problems to be able to sustain that dichotomy. Right. The Gelman amnesia is something I've been struggling with the objectivist community for a long time. I'm sorry, the what? Gelman, isn't that it? I don't know. You're using words that are beyond me, Katrina. <laughs> the, the term that Michael Crichton coined for when people read something they're an expert about in the newspaper and recognize it as false and then read something they're not an expert about and oh. accept it as true. Right, right. So objectivists who know a lot about objectivism read mainstream media accounts of objectivism and they're like, it's nothing to do with that. No, it's not even close. In fact, it's a complete opposite uh, of what it's supposed to be. And uh, and then, of course, yeah, then they read Donald Trump and they're like, yeah, that's legit. That's got to be perfectly accurate. I don't know the term, but it's a great term. I've heard of it vaguely, but I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. Well, and these aren't dumb people either, right? They're they're highly intelligent, but they, you know, you brought up racism. Literally, the conversation the other day, like, <laughs> it almost started with, well, he's a racist. And all I did was say, you know, and just to clarify, we're not, you know, we're not super Trump supporters. We just kind of like you. I mean, you know, we're both anarcho-capitalists, so just, just, just want the facts. That's, I just, I just want the facts. That's all. Yeah. So I said, well, really, like, what did he, what did he said that makes him racist? And there was, you know, throwing some stuff out that you know, which wasn't true, which we just, you know, explained wasn't true, and they looked up and tried to prove stuff, and it wasn't there, and it just it, that. You know, that argument never went anywhere, but it was also never. I don't feel like it was emotionally dropped. Right. It was like, oh, well, you know, I can't find an instance, but he's racist. <laughs> right. And, and, and if, if, if those same slurs had been used against Ayn Rand, they'd be very ferocious in the repudiation of it. And the racism thing, it, it's just become one of these non-arguments. I mean, the number of actual, genuine, bona fide racists in society, racism being defined as an irrational fear and hatred of other ethnicities. Uh, in other words, it may be, and, and, you know, I think it was the Reverend Jesse Jackson who said that he was really depressed after 20 years of advocating for the black community when he see, when he hears footsteps behind him in an alley and he turns around and sees white people, he's relieved, right? Because the, the black crime statistics in the U.S. are off the charts. And, uh, so it's an irrational fear and hatred of other, uh, ethnicities. Um, how many, how many people are out there who say, I hate, I don't know, I hate Estonians. Why? No reason. I just, I've never met anyone like that. There are people who have concerns and praise for various ethnicities based on possibly some genetic and, and most likely some cultural factors. But the number of actual racists who have just irrational, unfounded fears and, and hatreds of other ethnicities, well, because confirmation bias is very strong. Like, even if you do have such an irrational fear and hatred of other ethnicities, chances are you're going to go and try and some, find some facts to, to back up your assertion. Right. In the same way that people who have an irrational fear and hatred of Donald Trump will go and try and find some, quote, facts to to back up their uh, emotions. So the number of racists out there are very small. And the idea that 
keeping out illegal immigration from third world countries is racist is absolutely, completely, and totally false. First of all, you can't be racist and a real estate developer because I mean, the idea you're going to do this kind of work, uh, that you're going to run hotels without hiring Hispanics, I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> that's... I, I want I want a rap I want a rap label but I don't want any African Americans in it in any way it's only Icelandic rap that's an only elderly Asian Icelandic rap that's the because that's a niche market that I feel is vi- viciously underexplored and I really want to get an East Rahunavik and a West Rahunavik kind of a, a rap battle going on between these elderly Asian Icelandic people I mean it's just ridiculous it, it is a a Hispanic-centered industry in many ways. And he hires thousands of Hispanics and has great relationships with them. And according to all of the people that I've read who work for Trump, uh, he apparently is a great boss, a little bit intolerant of uh, silly mistakes, but who isn't? Who's got any kind of standards at all? Uh, So the idea that he's racist, um, this is a point I think that uh, Ann Coulter brought up in a conversation she had with Milo Yiannopoulos. Where when people say Trump is racist, well, first of all, you can, you can, of course, just laugh. I mean, as she points out, and she said, look, ask the maid if she'd like a raise, right? Ask, ask somebody who's Hispanic if, you know, if he's out there picking fruit or what, ask him if he'd like a raise. And of course he would like a raise. And if a American citizen Hispanic or, or anybody who's working in lower paid occupations, less skilled occupations, of course, they'd like a raise. And if you're going to give them a raise, then what you have to do is you have to prevent more and more flood immigration of third world immigrants. I mean, that's just the way it is. Because there's no question in a free market environment that an excess of supply is going to drive down prices. An excess of supply is going to drive down prices. And so illegal immigrants come in and undercut the wages of people who are already working. And, you know, I get that there's a free market argument. Well, what are you just like not have? But the problem is that their wages are heavily subsidized by welfare, by Obamacare, by free government schools, by, by the fact that taxes are paying for it. So it's one thing, like wages in America are exactly part of the same corporate crony capitalism, the capitalism that people decry in the free market. I mean, if governments provide massive subsidies to one particular company and not another particular company, that's no longer the free market. And government is providing massive subsidies to illegal immigrants uh, and immigrants as a whole who disproportionately accept government uh, programs. And it seems semi-permanently, if not downright permanently. So if the idea that he's racist means that he I don't know, has this irrational fear and hatred of, I don't know, Hispanics. Uh, but his policies will work to very much better the wages, negotiating power, and living conditions of tens of millions of Hispanics, legal Hispanics in America at the moment. So the idea that he's such a bad racist that he really, really wants to work hard, he wants to subject himself to death threats, he wants to subject himself to endless lies and slander about him, and he's so bad at being racist that the end result of all of this is going to vastly improve the wages, negotiating power, and living conditions of tens of millions of Hispanics. He's like the worst racist ever. (laughs) See, but the reason he's doing all that is because he's a megalomaniac who literally needs to rule the world. Okay, so 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 that argument is that anybody with high ambition must be doing so because they're insane. Like, they must be pursuing high ambition because they're insane. But that argument applies... That argument applies even more strongly to Ayn Rand than it does to Donald Trump. She had enormously high ambition. 
I mean, she wanted to rewrite the entire course of Western history. She wanted to rewrite and out Aristotle, Aristotle. She wanted to create a comprehensive uh, a system of um, philosophy going all the way from metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, you name it. She had pretty much everything to say about everything, even stamp collecting <laughs> and tiddlywink music. And so the idea that, well, if you have high ambitions, it must be because you're insane. How on earth would that not possibly apply to Ayn Rand, even more so than Donald Trump? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're in agreement that there's some irrationality here, but I guess if it's okay, I really want to figure out, I, I'm really curious about why this is happening with objectivists. That So th there's a personal reason for this. Partly it's, you know, introspection, like, you know, if it, if it can happen to them, right? Why, <laughs> what about me? And, and I guess, I guess the other concern is, um, I won't speak for Katrina, but for me, I used to be very involved in the objectivist movement. And a lot of my, I have a lot of kind of acquaintances now who are objectivists and I just haven't been very close with them and I don't really pay attention very much. And I kind of had a sense of comfort that they're out there being rational and, you know, I don't have to keep an eye on them, but they're, you know, they're out there fighting and being rational. And then I started to pay attention to my Facebook feed, which is always a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's the ticket tape of leftist programming referred to as the fa Facebook feed. Exactly. Um, but in this case, it was also like objecto programming because it was a lot of objectivists with whom I had been friends for for a while. And I don't know, I, I there was a, a part of me that was very disappointed and shocked that I had this sense of comfort that they were out there fighting and being rational. And now I'm seeing, actually, that's not at all what they're doing. They're off being irrational and and you know, oddly pro-cruise and slandering Trump and not even able to have a rational discussion about it. And so I, I guess I'm particularly curious about what the psychological factors are there because, uh, I don't know, I'm, I don't know, I'm terrified that that's going to become me somehow without, without really understanding what happened. Right. To me, it's like, what, did we ever even agree with these people in the first place? Like, did we really agree with them? Oh yeah, listen, tr Trump Trump doesn't make people crazy. Right? If you if you have a hole if you have a hole in your floor and you put a carpet over it, you haven't fixed the hole. All that Trump's doing is lifting the carpet and seeing the giant vat and hole of crazy underneath people. They're always that way. Hmm. That's disappointing. Awesome. <laughs> he's look, he's he's a litmus he's a litmus test as to one's capacity to be programmed. And listen, Please understand, I'm not saying that everybody who's anti-Trump is is a programmed, right? I get that that's not an argument, right? That's just an ad hominem and it, it does. So this isn't about whether you're pro or anti-Trump. Trump is revealing the degree to which people allow their emotional biases to run away with any last shreds of their rational capacity. You know, Trump is a big wind that blows through a cave. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping, in which case you probably shouldn't build a fire in a cave. <coughs> anyway, so let's, let's put, let's move the cave out to the open, <laughs> to the open, uh, field. Trump is a big giant wind and a big giant wind is friendly to fires and hostile to candles. Right. So if you have a decent fire and you get a big giant wind coming along, it's going to blow more oxygen into that fire and the fire is going to come roaring up. And if you're holding up a candle, it's just going to blow it out. Yeah. 
right? It's that line from the old Peter Gabriel song. You can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire. Feel the wind begin to rise, uh, catch the wind will blow it higher, something like that. As the wind begins to catch the fire, something like that. So, so, and, and I know that's an analogy, which again, I know is not an argument, but um, Trump is bringing information to the public that goes counter to the programming of the last 30 or 40 years, which is the leftist argument that all races, all cultures, all ethnicities, all regions, all historical momentums are all fundamentally identical. Now, leftists don't believe this at all, because leftists, of course, if they don't believe in diversity, because like 99% of reporters, at least in the Washington area, donate to I think 90% donate to the Democrats and like 99% of university professors in certain leftist, uh, or in certain humanities donate to the Democrats. And they don't sit there and say, well, you know, we just don't have enough diverse voices in here. Let's go hire some Republicans. They don't believe in that at all. And uh, they certainly don't believe, like if they say, well, you know, you can bring a Syrian refugee who's functionally illiterate in his own language, you can move him or you can move Somalis to Minnesota and they'll be just like Minnesotans in a generation or two or very, very quickly. They don't say that because otherwise they'd hire, go out and hire the smartest Republicans and say, oh, we'll just turn them into Democrats very quickly and very easily, right? They don't just keep those people away because they know that there's an intransigence to people's beliefs. And so, yeah, Trump is, is, is just big giant wind and he's making some people stronger and he's blowing out a whole lot of candles. And, um, and, and the, the, you know, the pushback, you know, I'm, I'm happy to speak to people who are against Trump. And I'm sure you are as well, because I'm happy to speak people to people who are against Ayn Rand. I'm happy to speak to people who are against me. Sure. The question is, what is their process of being against someone? And this kind of prejudice, you know, it's one of these things, just, just before we get into the, the deeper stuff, guys, I mean, it's one of these things that's really, really important to understand. I, I'm sure you guys get it because you have this question, but just to out there to people as a whole, people, 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 reading diet books doesn't make you thin. Watching people run a marathon doesn't make you fit. And there's this idea that, you know, well, I've read all of Ayn Rand's books and I've read all of Murray Rothbard's books or I've read Hans Hoppe's books. I've read Friedman, I've read, uh, oh, I've read so many, you know, uh, Peacock and all that. Oh, Peacock, I mean, uh, his book on um, the rise of Nazism, Ominous Parallels, great book. Uh, that's when he was still under the wing of Ayn Rand. I think it was better than the stuff he came uh, up with later. But anyway, well, I've read Nathaniel Brandon, therefore I have self-knowledge. It doesn't matter what you read. It only matters what you do. Now, you know, knowledge is necessary but not sufficient for wisdom. Wisdom is when you take knowledge and instead of just watching the wheels go round in the air, you put them on the ground and get somewhere. So people who've been around objectivism, but who have not had the challenge of putting objectivist ideals into action in their own lives, to me, have learned nothing. In fact, they've learned less than nothing. They have been reading, they have been talking, they have not been doing. Philosophy is a verb. It is an action word fundamentally to me. It is something that you do in the same way that you read diet books in order to change your diet. And, uh, you know, it's like saying, well, I really, my doctor told me I, I better start improving my cardio. So I went out and bought a pair of sneakers and threw them in the closet. 
well, you, you should have sneakers to run, but buying the sneakers isn't, right? And so this is the question fundamentally for objectivists or anyone who's against Donald Trump or for Donald Trump and so on. The question is, what is your process for, for being so? I had no opinion about Trump when I first heard that he was running because I don't know. I didn't know much about Donald Trump. Uh, I've never watched The Apprentice. Um, I, uh, hadn't read any of his books in the past. He'd just been one of these guys kind of floating around the periphery of my sort of vague media consumption over the decades. Didn't know anything about him. And I was surprised when he started talking about, uh, Mexicans and, and uh, criminality, uh, on the border and so on. And I was like, well, I wonder why he's doing that, you know, and, and he's remarkably popular. Well, these two things, all they are is data points. All they are is data points. So I began to research and say, okay, okay, so what, what, okay, so illegal immigration, he's saying is a big problem. Is it a big problem? And you start looking at the numbers and you can say, well, it's a big something, right? It's not small. Even if you count the low ball estimate of 11 million and other people have calculated up to about 30 million based upon remittances and so on. So okay, it's, it's something that's big. It's something that big. Yeah, you know, we're talking about something that could be, you know, five to ten percent of the entire U.S. population. Yeah, that's that's a problem. And then I started looking into other immigration. Um, okay, so uh, America was founded on, on immigration from Europe, and so what's the immigration from Europe, and what's the immigration from non-European countries these days? Oh my! <laughs> so it's like ninety ninety-five percent of immigration into America for the past thirty or forty years has been from third world countries and from um, cultures or belief systems that go very much against the American tradition of limited government and uh, Bill of Rights and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I started looking into uh, criminality associated with illegal immigration. Uh, and this, of course, is the source of the you know 80% of the women crossing over from Central America uh, into America are raped along the way. This is horrendous. And then I started looking into, well, if they're illegal, they sure as heck can't get welfare. Oh, wait, no, a lot of places they can, right, and send their kids to the public. They're not illegal, right? They're just non-taxed in a lot of ways. And so all, all that happened, and then I thought, okay, well, let's look at the demographics and the future and where everything's going, and let's look at the voting patterns of the immigrants, and let's and clearly they, they just vote left. Uh, vastly uh, in general. Well, the, especially for Mexico and, and South and Central America, they vote for bigger and bigger government, and they also vote for lower and lower taxes, which is why Central and South America are such wonderful paradises of fiscal stability, because that just shows stupidity, right? It's just, it's, it's just greedy, idiotic, low-rent retardedness, right? I want more government. I want lower taxes. Well, then you really should not be in a civilized society, because, um, well, reasons I don't you, you can't do math. You can't count. So, so for me, it, all that Trump was, I mean, I didn't care about the guy in particular. I was like, wow, he's made a big splash and there's a huge response to him. I wonder why. And so I just, it's just data points. That's all. And, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with a lot of the data points. And that's how I try to approach information, which is, uh, wow, that's really shocking. That's really surprising. That's really alarming. That's really unpleasant. That's really, um, stimulating. And so I try to look at the data to understand what the phenomenon is. And if you look at the data, 
it's 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 not hard to understand why Trump is popular among certain groups. And he's very popular, actually, I mean, relative to other Republicans among blacks and Hispanics. So it's not hard to figure out why Trump is popular, and it's not hard to figure out why he's saying what he's saying. And so that's the process. Now, then, now, if people go through all of that process, and then they can say, well, I think that I, I dislike Trump because of X, Y, and Z, but I understand why he's popular, and I understand the information behind his arguments. Well, then they can say, well, you know, the crime rate, while much higher than the general population, I'm willing to live with, you know, X number of hundred people being murdered. I'm willing to live with X number of thousand people being assaulted. I'm willing to live with X number of thousand people being raped because I have this whatever open borders thing. I'm willing to accept the big pile of bodies and bleeding vaginas in order to uh, pursue my moral agenda. Uh, I'm also willing to uh, have the government initiate more and more force for illegal immigrants on the on the case uh, on the um, on behalf of illegal immigrants i'm willing to have the government initiate more and more force in order to um to fund this because i like open borders which means that the government has to initiate a lot more force on taxpayers it has to print a lot more money it has to put in things like obamacare to cover the medical costs of illegal immigrants to a large degree and it has to borrow and so i'm i'm willing for more and more government more and more bodies more and more rapes more and more assaults in order to, like, okay, I may have moral issues with all of that, but at least they know the facts and they're willing to make the sacrifices. But the people who are anti-Trump, without even doing any research into why he's popular or why this guy who's a total genius and one of the best negotiators history has ever produced, a guy who's been talking about running for office since the 80s, a guy who doesn't take a step without a footprint in his mind of where to go, 10,000 steps from now. This guy who's so brilliant that, uh, you know, he took a million bucks and turned it into 10 billion, which is not really the case with most people who win the lottery, that this guy who is immensely popular and has uh, really challenged political correctness, and that is his greatest gift, challenging the media, challenging political correctness, and showing them for the paper tigers that they are, in fact, that you can go and say things that people find shocking, and they'll be shocked, and they'll clutch at their pearls, and they'll scream racist and bigot and women-hater and so on. And doesn't matter. You keep going and the people know the truth from the bullshit. The people can see through the evil veils of the media and prejudice and see to the actual facts. The, me the, the people are so desperate that they're out of Plato's cave. They're no longer looking at the shadows of people cast by the media. They're looking at the people themselves. And this medium of the internet, of course, really helps with that. So all that happens for most people is I don't, I don't think that they're even having an emotional prejudice against Trump. Uh, I, I think that basically what's happened is, and we'll get into the why in a second, but I think that basically what's happened is the media has made it unpopular to support Trump. And listen, by the media, I don't just mean sort of the mainstream media. There are lots of people uh, who call themselves conservatives. There are lots of people who call themselves libertarians. There are lots of people who call themselves objectivists or free market people or just rational empirical thinkers to begin with who have made it gosh to to support trump oh he's he's so terribly lowbrow I, I i can't imagine why anyone of any discernment and discretion and distinction would ever want to get behind such a ham-flavored buffoon as donald trump it's so, like they've just made it kind of um low rent to to sort of understand Trump's positions or be sympathetic to, to the issues that he's speaking to. And it is conspicuous to me 
it is very conspicuous to me, that the vast majority of people who are anti-Trump are not themselves battling it out with illegal immigrants in what's left of the free market. They're not. Who's anti-Trump? A lot of academics. Hey, do you think that Juan from Mexico is going to be taking over your tenured position anytime too soon? No. Oh, you're a reporter. Ah, okay. So fluency in English, left-leaning, well-educated, got the contacts, got the job, uh, and... Um, uh, is, is, are you going to be threatened by the guy who can't speak English who's coming across the border? No. Lawyers. Ah, well, you know, they got this big giant cartel and the government. And, and so all, a lot of the people who are opposing Trump are not themselves in the free market. Like conservative publications in particular. And again, I take this point from Ann Coulter. They have usually a backer. Like it's really hard to make money on the internet. <laughs> it's really hard to make money. So usually conservative publications have a backer and they're not customer facing in the same way that this show is, which relies entirely on donations. We have no backer. We have no one who writes us a check every month and we're just, you know, asking for donations to to pay for Cheetos. I mean, this is all, so, so I have a responsibility to my customers, whereas a lot of conservative outlets and left-wing outlets, we know for sure, but conservative outlets, they have someone who's, Who's funding them? And they are fundamentally responsible to who's funding them. That, that is their ultimate goal. They don't have to speak to the people. So it's funny because Trump is saying that if you are taking donations from large concentrated economic entities, you're going to be corrupted. And the conservative media as a whole is a perfect illustration of that. How many of them are making money entirely off the customers, the ads, or whoever it is? And see, then they actually have to deal with the people. Because if you're taking money from a large single donor with an agenda, I'm not talking about, I don't know, someone who sends you anonymous bitcoins. <laughs> I'm talking about somebody who's got a large donor, a large donor with an agenda. You are then responsible for imprinting upon the minds of the masses the agenda of your donor. You are not responsible for figuring out how to appeal to the masses. You are fundamentally involved in trying to attach the puppet strings of donor money and donor opinions and donor perspectives to your audience to make the move the way that you want. And that's what's going on in the conservative media. It is really, really time for the conservative media as a whole to detach themselves from the puppet masters of their donors and actually start doing what they say they like in the free market, which is appealing to customers. And you don't see this in other areas in life. You don't see Coca-Cola gets very little money from selling Coke, but gets a huge amount of money from a coalition of dentists who want to fix cavities. It doesn't, McDonald's isn't giantly subsidized by people who want to sell you diet books and exercise gear or, or blood thinners or whatever, right? I mean, they just, they don't have big giant donors behind them, like these big shadowy Saurons man managing and, and controlling and coordinating everything. That's not how it works. They actually, uh, McDonald's and, and Coca-Cola and, and so on, they get their money by appealing to the audience's preferences. This is not how think tanks in general, this is not how think tanks in general work. And I can think, I'm not going to name them, but I can think of at least a dozen right off the top of my head 
of of conservative, so conservative libertarian organizations that get their money from a single donor. And that donor has a preference with regards to immigration. And that donor money, they will not threaten. And if the donor money is about pro-immigration and rich people like lots of immigration because it uh, drives down the price of labor for which they hire. And so this show, like, what, what are you guys going to be taking money from some big, giant, shadowy money bags, Daddy Warbucks, who's going to cut off your funding if you go pro-Trump or if you even grow or go sympathetic towards the arguments that Trump is putting forward? Yeah, I I think actually it's, I think actually it's more subtle than that because I think they would argue, obviously we don't, we're not trying to push our donors agenda. Don't impugn us. And and I, I actually believe that they're not trying to push consciously their, the agenda of their donors. No, no, no. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. And I'll be, I'll just say this very, very quickly. I'm so sorry to interrupt you and I'll shut up in a sec. Cause I know I had a long speech. So you can say, well, we're not trying to push the agenda of our donor, but then you can't be a free market person because one of the foundational principles of any economics and in particular free market economics is that people respond to incentives. So if they're going to say we are immune from responding to incentives, then what they're going to have to say is they don't believe in the free market. But sorry, go ahead. Sure. And and that may be true as well. But but even if I think there's something more subtle and I think you touched on it, right? Even if they aren't consciously uh trying to push the agenda of their donor um and by the way i'm saying this as someone my my career i'm a entrepreneur and now i teach startups that run an accelerator so i'm very familiar with like bootstrapping and trying to please the customer and what happens is if you you know i'll use a startup analogy if you overfund a startup and don't like give them any direction at all they naturally lose track of their customer because they don't actually have to care about their customer. It's not that they're trying to push your agenda or do a particular thing. It's that the pressure that you would normally feel by having to go please your customer is relieved. And so you're kind of left to just whatever you feel like. And often what you feel like is conformity because that's easier. No, but they do have, you're trying to say that people who have a big funder don't have a customer. They lose track of the customer. No, they don't. The customer is the customer is the person funding them. Right. No, I, I get that. That's technically true. But but even the people who would would argue that they, you know, let's let's take an, an example of oh, you're funded by the Koch brothers. Therefore, and that's the kind of classical you know uh, argument yeah. against a lot of conservative organizations. Right. You're funded by the Koch brothers. Therefore, you're pushing their agenda. And I, I think even if people aren't consciously pushing the Koch brothers' agenda, they they certainly don't have to go out and please their listeners or their readers because that's not that they're now disconnected from the free market in that way. So they, at the very least, they have freedom to just kind of wander off in this disconnected state and go wherever they really want to go. And they're going to end up going where there's uh, where the, the path of least resistance, right, which is probably pleasing their donors generally. But it's not necessarily even conscious is, uh, is my point. Well, the other thing too, and I think that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and the degree to which it's conscious or not is completely irrelevant to the equation. And I'm sorry that that sounds rude, but because people say, well, how, how much, I don't get 50% conscious, 12%, 17%, it doesn't matter. People respond to incentives. So people who are on welfare, who vote Democrat, 
I mean, are they conscious of, who cares? They're just following their incentive, you know? Like a lion, how conscious of it, uh, of his hunting strategy is he and how much of it is instinctual? The zebra doesn't care. <laughs> Because the zebra's just got fangs going into its jugular and claws ripping out its intestines. It's like, how much of it is conscious? Eh, don't care. I don't know. That's not a noise that zebra makes. I don't know what noise zebras make, but it's not as funny as what goats make. But the other thing, too, is remember that there is a very strong, strong sociopathic, warmongering, neocon element within the objectivist movement. And the fact that uh, Trump is uh, has been so anti-war that is not insignificant. You know, so Trump wants to really hugely lower income tax. He wants to scale back a huge amount of regulation. He wants to have a non-interventionist foreign policy. He wants to think about charging NATO for all of the military protection that America provides, all of which are, you know, I think entirely in line with certain objectivist principles. But objectivism, uh, to some degree, has been taken over by, let's just say, pro-Israel sympathizers, and the idea that America would have a non-interventionist foreign policy when Israel relies so heavily on America for funding and weaponry uh, is not positive for some of the pro-Israel, uh, pro-Israeli um, thinkers. And so the idea, I mean, obviously, one of the greatest disasters of modern American history was the decision to invade the Middle East. Uh, and I put Afghanistan as much into this equation as Iraq, although Afghanistan is like the poor distant cousin of brutality that tends to be overshadowed by the disasters in Afghanistan. But one of the greatest, greatest disasters in, I would argue, all of American history, but certainly modern American history, um, was the invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Afghanistan and the destabilization of Libya and, and Syria and, and so on. Because that has ramifications not just to American lives, American interests, American the American economy, but it, as we can see, it is having massive ramifications to European stability with the migrants uh, all charging into Europe. It, it is one of the great disasters in world history should the consequences that I expect to accrue to Europe actually accrue to Europe, which is uh, the undermining and destruction of European civilization, it will be one of the great disastrous uh, decisions in history. And the fact that Trump was against that decision, and the fact that, you know, okay, Bernie Sanders was nominally against it, but voted to fund it and all that. So the fact that Trump was against one of the most destructive decisions ever made in human history but he said something about Mexican immigrants. It's like, do you big picture, bro? Do you big picture at all? Yeah. Mike, you've got some information on how objectivists get their money. I was just going to bring that up. Thank you, Mike. Because by the way, you're right, Stefan. I happen to know that they do get a lot of conservative donations. I was just going to say, uh, I mean, I can't give you tons of specifics right now, but it looks like lots of big hedge fund donations, as is the same with most think tanks. In, a conserv- in the conservative movement. Well, I'd push back a little against what Carter said, because even if they're not consciously, you know, conscious or not, uh, you know, Carter, you have a direct line to certain people at, in the objectivist movement because of how much money you've given them, right? I mean, yeah, that's, I'm sure you'd like to think it's because you're a great no, person. No, no, that's true. That, no, 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 that's, that's true. That's true, right? And so, yeah. Wait, wait, Carter? Sorry, Carter. Carter, sorry to interrupt. Are you saying that you donated a lot of money to groups? 
Uh, I in the past I've donated a. Okay, then I I totally agree with everything you say, and you're totally right. And anyone who disagrees with <laughs> now my natural right, enemy. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Go on, go on. Stop responding to incentive stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry, you, but I but I retain my objectivity. <laughs> Carter, um, are, are your feet sore? Your back's starting to rub or anything like that? Can I get you anything? Uh, but no, I mean you're you're right, Katrina. I mean, yes, the reason that the reason that I get asked about my opinion is probably, and I haven't given them money in quite some time, but I did in the past, and I think the reason that they give a crap about my opinion is probably because of that. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine that even if the uh, objectivists are pro-immigration of hostile or opposing cultures to everything that objectivist, objectivism stands for, they're probably not equally pro-immigration of third world cultures into Israel, right? This is, this is a big challenge. This is what makes people kind of suspicious is that Western countries must accept everyone. And they say, well, look, Jews accepted a lot of different people in Israel. It's like, yep, and they were pretty much all Jewish. So that's kind of a thing. I don't think there's a huge amount of Lutherans from North Africa swarming into Germany these days. But um, all right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. I mean, I'm sure with Israel, they would say it's this, you know, that they all understand the emergency situation argument. So the debate is always over whether or not this is an emergency, right? Um, every time some issue comes up with Islam, it's the same thing. There's one side that thinks, yes, this is an emergency, therefore, you know, basic rights can be ignored temporarily. And then there's the side that thinks, no, it's not an emergency and, you know, you need to respect those rights because slippery slope, you know, massive government, all of that. And I think they would just look at Israel and say Israel lives in a constant state of clear emergency you know, rockets being launched at them all the time or something like that. And therefore, whatever Israel does is fine because it's, you know, the beacon of reason and freedom in the Middle East. And, uh, but, but I, I would, I mean, I certainly agree. It's not quite a consistent stance. With not quite a consistent stance. Look, I, Ayn Rand fled to America to escape communism. How would she feel about millions and millions of diehard communists coming into the United States? With this, you know, with the ideological goal of overthrowing the U.S. government and instituting a totalitarian dictatorship under communism, which is exactly what she fled. So if Ayn Rand fled to America uh, to escape communism, how would she have felt and argued against a policy which imported specifically millions of communists every year? And subsidized them. And subsidized them. Yeah. Right, but then they would say, you know, maybe the Ayn Rand is out there, right? If Ayn Rand came out of communist Russia and Steve Jobs came out of Syria or whatever, then, you know, who are we not getting because of this because we close the borders oh yeah but then all of these wonderful muslims who could go to israel maybe one of them would come up with some wonderful defensive measure that would make israel safe from all of its neighbors so who are they to deny those people coming in right, right. i mean it's all nonsense right it's, it's got nothing to do with objective reason Right. And it's again, it's that economic fallacy of only looking at the upside and not looking at the downside at all. Well, you know, yes, we could get a Steve Jobs, but what's the cost? Right. But wasn't Steve Jobs adopted? I actually don't know. <laughs> I think Steve Jobs had a Syrian father, but I think he was he was an adoptee, if I remember right. That's been a while since I read his. His biological father was a Syrian immigrant, not a refugee. That's the, the myth is that he was a refugee, but no, he was an immigrant. So his father, his biological father was an immigrant, but his biological father did not raise him. Steve Jobs was raised by, in my opinion, an amazing man, one of the few men in the time of Steve Jobs raising who reasoned with his children and did not hit them. And this, to me, was a sort of an example of peaceful parenting. Now, 
I mean, Steve Jobs has some questionable stuff in his, you know, his rejection of his own kid and all that and Lisa. But nonetheless, I mean, I would ascribe that more to peaceful parenting because if you're going to say, well, Steve Jobs, a Syrian is responsible, then you're saying that Steve Jobs' ability is genetically transmitted uh, only in no environment, all genetics, in which case you're going back to race and IQ and you're going to be on some pretty shaky ground. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we, Katrina brought this up last night, which I think is just funny. You're making, you're making me, uh, you're reminding me of it, but you know, people who are in the, on, out of one side of their mouth, they're saying that race doesn't exist. It's a, it's like, it's not a genetic, a valid genetic, uh, concept. And the other side of the mouth, they call you racist, which is like, <laughs> no, no, you can, no, no, hang on. No, you can defend that logically. And I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. I don't agree with you. Can't, you can, because if race is a social construct, then anybody who judges another race is wrong because race is a social construct. But they're judging a nothing. If it's a, con if it's a social construct, they're not really judging anything real. So how can you get upset at them? Well, because they're wrong. Because they're, because they're uh, putting a criteria on people that is invalid and judging collectively by standards which aren't sensible. I see. Okay. Oh. Right. So, so if, if I say uh, all red-haired people are thieves, then people could say I'm bigoted against red-haired people because, you know, there's four red people who aren't thieves in the world. So, uh, no. But so, so if I'm judging people by an irrational collectivist standard, then clearly people can oppose me. If race is a social construct, then you can certainly oppose people for being racist. But, of course, if race is a social construct, then uh, leftists should be demanding for the dismantling of the NAACP and La Raza and uh, all of the pro-Hispanic and pro-black uh, groups that aim to advance the interests of Hispanic and black people. They should be arguing strongly and they should be carrying signs, they should be writing editorials, they should be uh, demanding that the government stop funding any race-based institutions, which they don't do, right? So the idea that race is just a social construct, and therefore the only people, the only groups that have should have pro-in-group racial advocacy groups are non-white groups, that's a complete contradiction, but of course that's never mentioned. Okay, I'll, that, that makes sense, I buy that argument. So, um... I, you know, I know the call's long. I don't want to like. No, no, this is good. Do you want to go even deeper? I, I do because, um, so I was thinking about this last night in terms of the why objectivists are behaving the way they are, and I did a little bit of introspection, and I I have a theory, but I just kind of want to bounce it off you and see what you think about it. Um, so like a lot of objectivists, I was raised very Christian, um, and I when I came to objectivism, there was some sort of sigh of relief that, uh, you know, I'm no, so, you know, being very Christian, you can kind of find a safe haven in the right to some extent, but the, you know, the leftists in the mainstream always hate you for, cause you're always opposing whatever their, uh, you know, mo most of their core tenants. And so you never had cool points, which I think is a euphemism for sexual market value, but you never get cool points. Right. Um, and then, when when you become an objectivist, I shortly after became objectivist, I moved to a rather liberal area of the country. Um, and uh, so this was your Christian tradition of self-flagellation continuing. Is that right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, but but what happened was I found myself suddenly be able being able to get cool points by agreeing with certain things that leftists said that I previously didn't agree with, like 
for example, um, gay rights and gay marriage was an issue that I changed my mind on when I became an atheist. And uh, suddenly I had cool points and I could talk about that stuff. And it became a little bit addictive, you know, immersed in this liberal culture to just start talking about and paying attention to the things that that got me praise. Um, and I slowly kind of started to forget about all the stuff that I disagreed with these people about, or maybe I just didn't bring it up. And so I, for myself, I realized that at some point I started to not have a backbone and be a little bit more cowardly than I think is appropriate. And when I realized that about myself, I started to reassert myself and realize I had to have uncomfortable conversations and it was okay that people didn't like me and kind of assert myself again. But there was a long period of time where that wasn't true. And I was kind of basking in this um, praise that I never got growing up because I was never part of the mainstream. And suddenly I was getting this, you know, adulation from the mainstream uh, for positions that I could talk about. And if you look at how a lot of objectivists behave, they, you know, even just last night, we were looking at an article where someone was, was arguing about the, um, the racism in the alt, uh, alt-right movement. And, you know, it is, I don't know if there's racism there or not, probably not mostly, but even if there is, if you're concerned about racism, that's probably like the last place to go looking and writing articles about. There's a million other things that are more important than that. But all those other things will get you vilified and hated by the mainstream culture. So instead of talking about those, you talk about the one thing where you'll get mainstream people to kind of agree with you and you get some praise. Um, and I think that there's just, frankly, uh, a lack of balls in the objectivist movement. I. I don't, I don't, I'm, I, I'm sorry, it's not. I, I assume you don't mean biologically because it's a tad bit of a sausage fest as a whole, uh, present company accepted, of course. I mean, metaphorically. And again, yeah. it's, this is a raw thought, so I'm sorry it's not very laid out and rational, you know, or articulated very well. But it, this is kind of what my thinking is right now on this. I mean, objectivism has these uh, seven virtues, right, that Ayn Rand articulated in The Virtue of Selfishness, and courage isn't one of them. And the older I get, the more. Uh, the more I wish she had included that one. Well, but you're but you're assuming. Hang on, but but you're assuming that 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 if she'd just written it down, everything would be different. I don't know that that's the case, right? Because <laughs> fair, you know, she she certainly wrote down she certainly wrote down reason and evidence, and people aren't pursuing that stuff with Trump. I mean, it helped me, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. it helped some people, and I I would have liked to have had more emphasis myself. Um, on courage, and I think if she had written it, I would have paid more attention to it. Right. No, look, I mean, um, when I sort of think back on on some of the stuff we did um, uh, with regards to police interactions with young black men, or even half Hispanic interactions with young black men, it would have been very easy in the libertarian community to say police bad, minorities good. Right. I mean, that would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, I would have got nothing but praise for all of that. Right. Yes. In the same way, if I had said uh, immigration good, uh, and borders are the initiation of force, and blah de blah de blah, uh, then I would have got nothing but praise for that too, right? Yep. Yep. And um, so you can cherry pick what you talk about in order to get praise if you want to. Or, or I could have just not dealt with the topics at all, right? I could have just said I'm not going to talk about that, 
um, which would neither have gotten me praise, maybe a little bit of blame for avoiding or something like that, but uh, there would have been many easier things to do uh, than the course that I took. Or talking about, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know if it's more true in libertarians. It certainly is more true among conservatives. Conservatives, white knight, like it's... <laughs> Like it's, it's, you know, brush your teeth, put on my uniform, ba -ba -ba -ba, off I go to ride and save the eggs. And so uh, conservatives in particular, white knight like crazy. And so um, the Michelle Field stuff and, and other things where white knighting has come up, um, it's uh, giving women responsibility for their role in the cycle of violence because women hit their children so much. Um, you know, th these are all difficult and unpopular and challenging positions to take. And they're not just positions like, I just love annoying people, you know? Hey, do people like me? I could fix that <laughs> by taking this approach. Uh, it's just that I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I have engraved in my goddamn heart when Aristotle took on Plato's theory of the forms, which sounds all very abstract, but really isn't. It's very concrete. He said, we love our friends, but we must love the truth more. And that has been the one of the few founding credos of this conversation, of what it is that I'm doing. We love our friends, love objectivists, love the libertarians, but we must love the truth more. And when we sacrifice the truth to save our friendships, we are deeply insulting our friends. Whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, it is deeply insulting to our friends to withhold the truth from them. Because we are already prejudging them as people who are going to irrationally, violently, immaturely, pathetically rail against facts with emotional abuse. And this is what you're facing. You're facing emotional abuse from your friends. The moment that somebody calls you a racist or a misogynist or, you know, whatever the white privilege or, or cisgendered scum or patriarchal or whatever, the, the moment that they use these terms against you, you are in a situation of being verbally abused. I mean, if they've got really good reasons for saying it, then it's a different matter, right? And so when we withhold the truth from our friends, the friendship is over. It's over. Now, you can continue to hang around and conform if you want, but the friendship is over because you have now said, my friendship cannot handle honesty. I am going to be verbally abused for telling somebody my true thoughts and feelings. And that the friendship is over. And, and not only is it incredibly disrespectful to your friends, it is incredibly disrespectful to yourself. Because when you lie to your friends by omission or commission, when you lie to your friends, what you're saying is, the best I can do is friends I have to lie to. That's the best I can do. That's all I'm worth. And that is simply an act of self-contempt that I could not ever bring myself to do. I cannot have a show about philosophy while simultaneously believing that the world cannot handle the truth. That's like being a doctor saying there's no such thing as health. I can't do it. I can't do it. I must tell the truth, and I will find my true friends through that, but I must tell the truth. Because the alternative is an act of contempt against my relationships and myself that for me would like make life viscerally unbearable. This is a completely emotional response. 
Like if I had to wake up in the morning, brush my teeth, look at myself in the mirror and say, get ready for a day of sycophantic lying to everyone you claim to love. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know, like I just, I'd, I'd throw up in my mouth a little bit and I'd go back to bed. I'd pull the covers over myself and I wouldn't want to get up again. Yeah. And ironically, objectivists are particularly good at ostracism um, and tribalism with respect to, uh, you know, if you talk about an idea that they don't want to talk about, uh, you can get ostracized really, really easily rather than having kind of this. I mean, you've seen, you see the schisms, I feel like every few years there's a new schism and objectivism where some people are ostracized for talking about something in a way that, you know, the, the other group didn't like. And instead of just having this agreement to continue rational discourse and have disagreements over it and talk about it openly, it becomes like you're excommunicated and, you know, you're not part of the tribe anymore. Right. In other words, Ayn Rand relies upon social metaphysics to promote a philosophy directly against social metaphysics. And look, this is natural. Like, I mean... Hang on, but certainly her followers do. Yes. Well, she... No, come on. She ostracized hideously as well. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess um, i recently, but obviously, yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> and that's because she she didn't process her own ostracism. Uh, she... um. She had the impatience of the genius, which is to which is to fail to recognize that it's always earlier than you think in the revolution. But uh, that's a topic for another time. No, no. I mean, that, by the way, Nathaniel Brandon was my therapist at one point, and uh, obviously before he died. Uh, and um, oh man, you did you really, really need to? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I yeah, but um, he uh, he said to me once, you know, Ayn Rand told me that she knew nothing about psychology and I should have believed her and he started <laughs> you know he kind of described how he had gone down this path of trying to kind of look at psychology through her lens instead of his own judgment um but yeah so anyway I don't know no he actually he wrote a whole essay uh, apologizing for his role in trying to help people suppress emotions as a result of objectivism and it's worth looking up on the internet it's a, a very courageous and honest essay um so uh, i'm sorry i was gonna yeah i mean so to our credit we don't do a lot of um patting ourselves on the back even though we are almost always right um but uh, you know last august we called donald trump it's going to be very significant it's going to be very important and it's going to create a huge schism in america we got this honest conversation about donald trump that's in august of last year and we called it early. So there's a lot of other things that are going on with Donald Trump, uh, most notably that there has not been uncucked alpha males allowed in society for the past 50 years. Yeah. Right? You can be a, quote, alpha male as long as you're a giant gray-haired pussy like George Clooney. Or, or, or Brad Pitt. And, like, you can be... You're allowed to be a, a sort of alpha male as long as you are relentlessly leftist or people are frightened of you like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> you can be a little bit on the right, even though he's ineffectual on the right. He sacrificed his marriage and his family to do – to do. yeah, he sacrificed his, his, um, his life, his family, his relationship with his kids to do SFA. Sweet frack all in California. Hey, California's been saved. Nope, nope, just wasted your time and money and banged a housekeeper. Anyway – um, so Donald Trump is an alpha male who is not castrated by the left, who is, I mean, wh who was the last one? You could argue maybe Reagan, 
But you, you mentioned how conservatives are the ultimate white knights. And I think that it's like, I don't think it matters whether you're castrated by the left or the right. You just, I think the, the negative response that I'm seeing from the right and certainly from the objectivists is because he's not castrated by anyone. Right. And it's a whole bunch of beta males essentially losing their minds. <laughs> what he's called, like, he, he implicitly reveals everyone as a fucking coward. Yeah. Look, he's gone up there, he's spoken his mind, and he's winning. And everyone's been like, oh, well, I can't say that, or I don't want to have something conformist, and I'm gonna, people are going to get mad at me and say bad things. I, I will put myself in this category as well. Like, we can go up, we can speak the truth, we can shock the tits off people, and we win. Right. Right? We just passed 5 million video views in 28 days. And, and there's about an equal number of podcast downloads. We're doing 10 million. And, and the, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not because people haven't tried to be negative towards us, right? I mean, you, you go and you speak the damn truth and you win. There's this giant, you know, there's something that Jeb Bush said once. He said, there's no constituency for the truth. There's no constituency for the truth. That was, and this is why Jeb Bush has no energy, and this is why he's a dishrag of a man, in my opinion. But um, Trump, by going out and speaking the truth, has revealed everyone to be either corrupt or a coward with regards to immigration and with regards to jobs. And in particular with regards to immigration, the fact that he's talking about harsh truths you know, watch him read um, the poem, The Snake. I mean, it's not hard to figure out what he's talking about. And so the fact that he's saying, look, there's significant indicators that Islam may not be wildly compatible with the West. You know, the fact that it takes this guy to state what Captain Obvious would consider beneath him, and and he he wins as a result, means that all of the negative consequentialism that people have been terrifying themselves with turns out to have just been a self-invented boogeyman hand puppet that it could have put down at any time and done the right thing and spoken the truth. Right, and that terrifies people because it, he, it'll inspire other people to real, other people will realize that and start speaking more. Well, they, oh no, it's not, 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 on the left, yes, but on the right, why didn't they do that? Right. There, there would be, there would be no, sorry to interrupt, there would be no disaster in Europe right now. No demographic disaster in Europe right now if conservatives had got the hell behind Charles Murray and Dick Hernstein after the bell curve in 94. 22 years ago, if they had gotten behind this book and had continued to publish the information about race and IQ differences, A, maybe the problem could have been solved if it would have been solved, or B, if it can't have been solved, at least everyone would be aware of the disaster of bringing low IQ people into a high IQ society. And even if we say it's all environmental and it's nothing genetic, okay, fine. So Syrians have an average IQ in the 80s, low 80s. So you've got low 80s parents raising kids. How's that going to work? Are they going to, no, I mean, so if conservatives had pushed back and said, look, look, you crazy lefties, you say every single morning you get up and you, you, you practice in the mirror the sentence, Conservatives are anti-facts. Conservatives are anti-science. Because what? We're skeptical about global warming? Okay. How about you guys deal with race and IQ? Because that's a fact. As, as sure as these facts can be developed, there's a hundred years, Lord knows how many tens of thousands of tests, and they all say the same thing. 
that there are differences between race and IQ. So how about you look in the mirror for your, oh, the big problem is us and evolution? I don't think so. You deny evolution by denying that wildly disparate environments could have any effect on human development. So they could have pushed back hard against the left on this. And instead, they basically, it was like the night of the long knives, and all the conservatives came out to stab Charles Murray and the late Dick Hernstein in the back with regards to the bell curve. And if they had had the courage of their convictions, the courage of the data and the courage of the facts behind them, they could literally have done a huge service to the salvation of Western civilization. And I speak that not lightly, and I speak that not in hyperbole, but as a basic fact. So Donald Trump is now, he's not talked about race and IQ, but he's talking about cultural compatibilities and incompatibilities. And he's winning because of it. And so these Benedict Arnolds of conservatives, and it wasn't going to come from the left, but it was going to come from the right. The Benedict Arnolds of conservatism and the conservatives. I'm just picking one example out of many, many, many different examples. The Benedict Arnolds of people who betrayed somebody who brought an essential piece of information to Western civilization, the ignorance of which is literally destroying Western civilization. The fact that Donald Trump is coming out and speaking 1% of these issues and winning reveals them to be spineless, self-betraying, self-loathing, vicious, civilization-destroying bastards. Yeah, I, I, I see that. I see that. So he's, he's, the, uh, he's the UV light that's shining on their hands and saying, look, there's blood. <laughs> like they- Brilliant. Brilliant, because I think he's got a fake tan too, so that analogy works on very many different levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. She seems to change multiple times per day as well. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen someone so reactive to different types of lighting. Yeah. Oh, except me. <laughs> I used to have a I used to have a camera on auto setting, but basically I I move towards the camera, I move back, the camera color changes. I'm like a chameleon. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. But so yeah, there, there's a lot going on too, and of course, um, uh, feminism's relationship to the alpha male is very complicated, and feminism has basically. Political correctness is just female hypersensitivity to offense. It's just the emotion-based thinking that characterizes a lot of women. Again, present company accepted. And uh, so um, uh, women's style of thinking has dominated public discourse for at least two generations, probably three or four. And feminism's relationship to the alpha male is one of probably visceral hatred combined with sexual excitement. That's the only thing that I can possibly (laughs) figure out about it. Uh, It is such a complicated mess. Um, and so, so that aspect of, of the, the alpha, uh, unapologetic, um, America first nationalist alpha male crashing into the interla- internationalist, socialist, communist, feminist, uh, thought structure, uh, is another thing that is just absolutely glorious to behold. I don't care about the shape of the wrecking ball that takes down the factory of evil. I don't care whether it's got funny hair. I don't care whether it's tall or short. I don't care. I care that there's impacts against existing thought structures that are killing the West. Right. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the thing to like about Trump. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna praise something about him, it's that that he's the, you know. Well, I think you called him a, the a, the murder weapon against the RNC, but it's not just the RNC. It's against mainstream media and and a whole bunch of other stuff. He is open. He is opening up a vague possibility of actual discourse about these issues. And he's also very much, as you guys are mourning and, and understanding, which I appreciate, he is also opening up 
very clearly and shining a light on whether you can have a rational discussion with the people you think are your friends. Yep. And so think of the time. This is a free service that Donald Trump is saving you, which is years of pretending your friends are rational or sensible or even smart. Like, I mean, what a free, what a free service. You know, it's sort of like if someone could talk you out of a terrible breakup before you even dated the woman, wouldn't that be great? Like this is, you know, the woman, the woman you marry or the guy you marry in, in the US, probably more the woman because of the family court system, the woman you marry who sleeps around with you, who gives you herpes, who takes you to court, who shreds your finances, who keys your car. And some guy ahead of time says, oh, listen, she's crazy, man. And he convinces you not to date her. I mean, damn, wouldn't that guy be about the best friend you could possibly have? And if he did it for free? A lot of money, Brian. And, and uh, yeah, he's like, he saved you time, money, large portion of your life, obviously, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Trump will very quickly reveal if your friends are cowardly conformists or not. And again, it's not about being pro or anti-Trump. It's just having some damn thought behind your reaction. Do they have Trump reveals, do people have self-knowledge? Right? Like there's lots of information I come across where I'm like, whoa, that is like I was reading, reading, I just interviewed Roger Stone yesterday. I'm reading some of his books. And this is information that I, you know, part of me would like not to have, <laughs> you know, it's just, frankly, it's like, it's shocking. And it's, but he makes very good cases and he's a, a very good researcher and is a good writer. And so, you know, when people start talking to me about JFK's assassination, hey, I've got more information. Does it accord with what I thought before? It does not. It does not at all. But it's a very good case and I can't just ignore it. Some of the stuff about the Clintons, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the Clintons to begin with. It's pretty shocking. So Donald Trump is this wonderful litmus test of are your friends only pretending to think or can they actually think? Can they actually come up with coherent information and arguments even in the face of strong emotional countercurrents, whether those emotional countercurrents are coming from themselves or from those around them? Are they conformists? Are they lazy? Are they only pseudo-intellectuals? Are they only pretending to think? Do they Are they just followers? Are they just, you know, hysterical, couch-fainting, Jane Austen spinster aunts um, who manipulate everyone to get their way, right? Are they the uh, dowager countess from Downton Abbey? Or or can they actually think? And so Donald Trump is is the service he's providing to anybody with the eyes to see is saving everyone from really bad, self-destructive, toxic relationships with people who only pretend to think, but are actually just deep, scared, conformist nobodies. Right. I'm actually a little embarrassed it took Trump to show that to me because I, I'm involved on sort of the men's rights stuff and the strange love affair between objectivists and feminism, uh, certainly post-Rand's death at least, and she was not a fan of feminism, has perplexed me or I say it perplexed me but it didn't really because I, I knew what was going on but I didn't really want to know it uh, because you know I, I mean the only answer to that is that you're not actually thinking and you know if you're female it's to your benefit and if you're a non-alpha male then it's your in you know with the females so 
Well, yeah, because, I mean, the objectivists, maybe it's because Ayn Rand is such a powerful figure in the movement, but the objectivists feel that objectivism raises, lowers their sexual market value, and so they try and prop it up with feminism. That's bullshit. I mean, you, you follow the truth, you follow reason, you follow evidence, and the ladies will follow you. <laughs> You know, you, 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 I mean, and this is true for, for women as well. I mean, you, you don't, you don't sit there and, and break your own back to attract a woman. You don't, you don't compromise your own ideals to attract a woman. It's like, ew. I mean, because <laughs> the only women you're going to attract are women who want to dominate you and enjoy the sight of you with a broken spine. Oh, that's great. It might be good for eight to 10 minutes for your penis, but it will be very bad for your heart, mind, and wallet down the road. I feel like you're describing one of my previous relationships early in my objectivist life. So. Yeah, well, I, uh, I've i been there too. And I say, I say this because I've provided the very same service for 10 years. I've provided the very same service as Donald Trump, albeit in a slightly smaller sphere, for 10 years in that um, I make a lot of rational arguments. And I provide, you know, what, 3,400 podcasts and almost 2,000 videos, which people can share. And they can share. And that way, people can get to the response back. Oh, that guy is such a hat, like whatever crap term they use, right? It's like, hey, I have just saved you years of emotional pain, subjugation, cowardliness, self-loathing, and god-awfulness, you know. So maybe sign up for a donation or a subscription because, you know, I just saved your damn life. Because people can share my videos with, you know, whatever group. They can share a video with the Bernie supporters where I'm critical of socialism. They can share a video where I'm critical of feminism with their feminist friends, the, the men's rights stuff, like uh, all of the stuff that I have done. And... And if, I'm like the litmus test. And again, it's not whether people agree or disagree. It's just can they disagree intelligently? Or do they just emotionally react and cough up verbal abuse like a cat hurling a furball on your tiny head? Well, okay, so I've, I've provided this service for people uh, as, as have many other people. And um, it is uh, – and, and people get mad at me like, Steph, you broke my friendships. Nope. <laughs> nope. No, you thought there was a bridge that could hold your weight. And uh, it was, in fact, made of papier-mâché and balsa wood. All I said was, okay, step on the bridge. Crack. Steph, you broke my bridge. Nope. <laughs> no, I didn't. You did. Um, I just said, test it. So, and, and as I've talked about before, Trump is a fantastic R-selected detector. R-selected. R-selected detector. Um, people who don't have any particular in-group preferences are, are selected by definition, and I've gone through all of that in the Gene Wars presentations, which we can link to below. Uh, Trump has an in-group preference. He is actually saying to people, how does this immigration benefit me? I get how it benefits the immigrants. I mean, it's a lot more fun to sit on welfare in Amsterdam than it is to toil away in the desert in Algiers or wherever. How does it benefit the domestic population? Now, the fact that Trump is saying, how on earth does immigration benefit Americans who are already here, that, that is like the introduction to the virtue of selfishness. What's in it for me? Yeah. What's in it for me for my taxes to go up, for my children to get worse education, for crime to go up, for debt to go up, to be called a racist every time I point out there are problems with particular ethnic communities, for me to be driven out of a community because the white flight, and it's not just white flight, it's just smart flight. Uh, it happens to blacks as well. They don't exactly hang out in Harlem if they're making $150,000 a year for the rest of their lives. So this idea that Trump is saying, what's in it for me? What's in it for us? How does it benefit us? The fact that America is giving all of this, quote, free armies and navies and, and military protection to everyone else and not charging them a goddamn penny is ridiculous. 
So the fact he's saying, okay, what's in it for us? For us to go around protecting Europe all the time. What the hell's in it for us? It costs us a huge amount of money. And Europe's deal with us like they're a French waiter, like they're peeing on you from a great height. Oh, these Americans, they're so... Right? So why the hell are we... Why are we, why are we defending and spending blood, treasure, and lives to protect these cheese-eating surrender monkeys? Why, why don't we charge them for it? I mean, how is charging for services provided somehow anti-objectivist? I mean, come on. He's, he's fighting against the altruism of sacrificing in-group preferences for the benefit of out-groups who hate the in-group. He's saying, why would we do that? How is that beneficial to us? Of course, it's beneficial to other people. Yeah, it's beneficial for the mosquito to take your blood. How is it beneficial to you? Now you have Zika and an itchy pimple. So, damn, I mean, the, 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 this is, it's, it's horrifying, but incredibly instructive to see people whose emotional reactions and desire for conformity and fear of verbal abuse causing them to completely shred all the foundations of their philosophy. I think that's all it is. I think it's fear of verbal abuse. Which I understand, uh, you know, we are, you know, K-selected people are afraid of rejection. Our selected people aren't as much because they can always find new people because there's nobody with any standards. Sorry? How can you get that far into something like object? I mean, my entire, and maybe this is because I, you know, was always sort of right leaning, but I was an atheist, you know, since I was five years old. So I've, I've just, I don't know, my whole life has been that type of verbal abuse. And I don't understand how you could even dabble in objectivism without being subjected to that. Uh, so like, wouldn't you get over it <laughs> when you toughen up at some point and like, why is the line drawn here instead of, you know, when people say you're evil because you don't want free health care for people. And I don't know. That's probably the, I mean, it's the alpha male thing, right? This is the, this is the first time that it's like, actually there's been a, an alpha male challenging feminism and you know i that's my i don't know steph probably steph will have a better answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's my cut theory too um mike you wanted to mention something yeah katrina it sounds an awful lot like you're mistaking the world for yourself i can't believe other people are responding this way i can't believe they're having this reaction i in this situation would respond in this way I and trust me, I I've done this myself many many times. Like this is so simple. How come you can't see these statistics on immigration and crime are skewed because of this, or they're leaving out this information, or they're they're obscuring the data to get what they want by doing this little simple trick? You know, it's like how come people don't see this? It's right there. Here we'll do a presentation explaining how it's done, and then you still get the same stats thrown at you. How how come people don't get this? Well, I'm mistaking the world for myself. Yeah, that's probably that's true. And the last thing, uh, sorry, the last thing. Oh, no, go, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, in fairness, when I'm seeing other objectivists, uh, you know, they know that I'm an objectivist. And I, so there's no cost to them speaking out about that stuff with me. I don't necessarily see them, you know, in their classrooms in college full of liberals or in, you know, casual social situations at parties or, you know, any anything like that. So, uh I, I think I just sort of assume they behave the way that I do, and I don't actually have any direct evidence of that. Well, you have direct evidence to to counter that. Well, now I do. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Trump, so. <laughs> yeah. 
And and I you know I I can't think of anybody in recent memory who's had the amount of attacks directed against him as Donald Trump has. And and if people want to be against Donald Trump, listen, I mean this is not this is not complicated, and by that I mean it's hard to understand because it's so easy, which is generally the curse. Right? Things are a lot easier than we think they are. It's just that we like to complicate them so we don't have to act. But um, let's say that you genuinely believe that Donald Trump is uh, is Hitler or whatever, right? Let's say you do, right? Well, the way that you talk someone out of being a Donald Trump supporter is to listen to their concerns and say how those concerns will be better addressed with someone else, right? I mean, look, we all know this, that when we say we want a free society or we don't want the welfare state, then people say, let's say that uh, someone comes up to me and says, oh, so you're against the welfare state. How would the poor be taken care of in the free society, right? And if I say, racist, what the hell would that do, <laughs> right? I mean, it would, I'm, I'm not listening to their concerns. I'm actually just reinforcing their perspective that I'm some weird thinking asshole who has no capacity to empathize or, or doesn't care about, like it would confirm everything they suspect about objectivists or libertarians not caring about the poor, right? Or if I just said, uh, uh, they say, well, how would you care for the poor? And I'm like, well, the poor are all leeches. Why should I care about them anyway? Freedom, right? <laughs> I mean, they would be like, eh, I don't know. There are some poor, a lot of poor people. It's not their fault. You know, the kids, some people who are disabled. Anyway, so, so if people were genuinely against Trump and were not being emotionally reactive idiots, then what they do is they go to a Trump supporter and say, okay, tell me, tell me how like how Trump works for you. What What is it about what he's saying that really appeals to you? What is it that you want? What is it that in you that you're worried about or want that he speaks to? And people will say immigration and jobs, right? And if you want to change someone's mind, you have to do a lot of listening first. Because you have to figure out what their concerns are, and then you have to convince them, A, that the person they think will solve their problems will only make their problems worse, but there's another solution that will actually make their problems better. And the people who are anti-Trump are not doing that. They are not addressing people's concerns, which is driving the popularity of Trump. No, they're dismissing the concerns out of hand, basically, is what they're doing. No, they're not. They're not dismissing. They are attacking. Oh, fair. Even worse. Yeah. Right? So, in other words, it is a verbally abusive relationship where somebody – look, people, the American people have some pretty goddamn legitimate complaints at the moment. You know, the vast, a significant majority of Americans think that the country is going a very, very bad direction. The economy has never really recovered from 2008. The national debt is staggering. It took the length of America minus eight years to get to 10 million, and it only took eight years to get to near 20 million. Uh, tw 20 trillion, sorry, 20 trillion. And the, the amount of debt, the amount of dysfunction, the amount of wounded, the amount of veterans, the amount of, like, the, the terrible quality of education, a crumbling infrastructure, no jobs, like tens and tens of millions of Americans just out of the workforce. Just when are they coming back? Who knows? Every day they don't. They're less employable. 
everybody's terrified of what might happen if the government starts to run out of money because there'll be riots in particular communities, of course, and there'll be cars set on fire. I mean, America is, is, is just holding together by a thread of debt. People have legitimate concerns, and most people are not waking up in the morning and saying, my biggest concern in this country is that Wall Street speculators aren't taxed highly enough. <laughs> they have very visceral, deep-seated, important concerns. And everybody who takes the delicacy of people's significant discontent with their entire system and just screams them down as racists and fascists and Hitler lovers and so on, they are driving the exact disaster that these people fear. They are driving to, if you think Trump is Hitler, listen, you, if you're really scared of Hitler screaming at all the Hitler supporters that they're racist, evil people, okay, maybe they are, but that's not going to solve the problem. All that does is that drives them further into the arms of Hitler because nobody else is listening to them. Trump is listening to the people. All the people screaming abuse at Trump are saying to the people, we are not going to listen to you. Shut the fuck up, pay your taxes, go away, and you're racist. Now, Trump is listening to the concerns of the people. And the people who are against Trump are screaming abuse at the people. That is so not the way to change anyone's mind that they could not be doing a better service for Trump if they tried. They are driving more and more people towards the only man who seems to be listening to their actual concerns. And their actual concerns are not whose wife is prettier or which reporter might have got a few finger bruises on her forearm. Their concerns are, I haven't had a job in two years. I'm drowning under student debt. The manufacturing plant just closed down, which means my last hope of getting a job seems to be gone. There are so many regulations in my way of starting my own business that I can't even be bothered to try. The system is rigged. The game is rigged. The rich get richer. I'm sliding down from the middle class into living in a cardboard box under a bridge. And the media is yawping about some fucking tweets from years ago about Rosie O'Donnell. Are you kidding me? The indifference to the needs and the hungers and the desires and the passions of the people is driving them further and further to Trump. This has nothing to do with changing anyone's mind. Trump threatens people. They're too immature to have any self-knowledge as to what's really going on. So they scream abuse at people. And that drives people further and further towards Trump because you go to the person who's listening, not to the person who's screaming abuse at you. So people need to shut up, stop verbally abusing people, grow up, grow a sack, grow some uterus, whatever the female equivalent is, and they need to shut up and start listening to people's concerns. Now, if they can convince people or if Bernie Sanders has some better way of dealing with the legitimate issues that Americans have than Donald Trump, then listen, find out what those issues are, make your case. But basically, this is the situation. The media, the people, the people you're describing, 
They're like an abusive husband who screams that his wife is a slut, she's lazy, she's fat, she's a pig, she's a bitch, she's a see you next Tuesday. And then he's really, really shocked when she has an affair with the first guy in years who comes along, holds her hand, looks into her eyes, and listens. That was very well put. <laughs> that was very powerful. And objectivists could learn a little bit of something from that too. And I, I, I don't do these call-in shows for shits and giggles. I mean, I enjoy them and I find them very important. But I get to listen. The, 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 who, who else out there, at least in this sphere of, of media, who else out there gets as much feedback from people about what matters to them as I do? Yeah. I mean, we, we just added this third show because it's months to get on this show and people have urgent issues. So now I might be doing 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 hours of call-in shows a week because I want to know what's important to people. And I don't know. I mean, you, you sit there behind a desk staring at a camera, not talking to average people. You get your celebrities to come on or your talking head robots, your think tank unthinkers. But I actually talk to people. And Donald Trump is listening to the people. And that's why the people, and that's why 15,000 people show up to see Donald Trump. You know, four to Rubio, of whom three are delivering water bottles, and a couple of hundred for Cruz, because those people are not listening. They're just lecturing. Right. Right. And most radio shows will have a two-minute conversation, right? What are we talking for? An hour? Second like hour and 45 yeah. minutes. Hour 42. I thought this was going to be a short call. <laughs> yeah, um, I was like, oh, he's going to, you know, it'll be quick. He'll just answer it and we'll move on. And I don't think we've, I don't think we've had a wasted, yeah. I don't think we've had a wasted syllable in this call. No, it's been delightful. It's been a great conversation. Um, and. And very helpful. Uh, yeah. And I mean, from your side, I mean, it, it just, it makes a lot of sense because you are learning you know, you're, you're understanding your customers basically and figuring out how best to affect the change that you want, that we all want you to affect. So. Yeah, I can tell the truth about just about anything, but I want to tell the truth about what's important to the listeners. And, uh, it's a, it's a balance, you know, I need to figure out what I need to talk about that's going to help them in the future, which can be annoying to people who just want to talk about issues in the now. And I also have to talk about history, the degree to which it shapes perceptions in the future and the direct, uh, direction, uh, perceptions in the present and direction of the future. And I also have to talk about immediate concerns that people have. And it's quite a balancing act uh, of which, you know, we're constantly stumbling back and forth. Uh, but um, it, it is a very delicate process to go through. And, um, you know, we, we put out stuff. I know for sure it's going to upset people. You know, the GMO stuff we put out, 9-11 stuff that we put out. Um, and, and definitely the, the parenting spanking stuff is very disconcerting to a lot of people because it's saying, take the wheel off the air and put it on the ground and enact the non-aggression principle in the only sphere you have control over, which is your own direct life. And uh, saying to people, listen, you need to live for your values. And being around people who directly oppose your virtues is not a recipe for integrity. Uh, and it's really challenging for people because it's a lot easier to listen and talk and make speeches and read books and not do anything foundationally to change your life. But uh, if philosophy is not lived, it is a lie. 
So anyway, I got to move on to the next caller. Thank you guys so much for bringing this topic up. And uh, I, I really appreciate the conversation. We loved it. Thank you so much, Stefan. And uh, count us in for, for uh, people who wouldn't want to hear more peaceful parenting, even though it's not as popular when you talk about it. But uh, great stuff. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, sometimes you harvest and sometimes you, you plant. And the, the peaceful parenting is the planting side. All right. All right. Well, up next is Fred. Fred wrote in and said, on a recent show in the context of the migrant crisis, you expressed that you were on the fence about whether Europe, quote unquote, deserves to be saved. First, you should know that most Europeans that still have a spine have a distinct dislike for the generalizations that involve all of Europe, since that covers everything from the lazy and the corrupt Greece to the hardworking and innovative Switzerland, and arguably a good chunk of Turkey and Russia. And while the U.S. government gives a decent helping of freedom to its own citizens, you could well argue that the people of Switzerland or Poland are in many ways more free. And said nations are not involved in the wholesale murder and suppression of freedom in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. So can you honestly say that the U.S. deserves to be saved more than we do? Or that there's some other country out there that you think is more deserving? Or have you simply given up on the whole world? That's from Fred. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey fred I, I don't know if this sounds like a really important topic or not i'm just kidding uh, <laughs> yeah i'm i'm sorry i'm throwing down the gauntlet there a little bit no that's fine that's fine but the first thing that struck me is that you you seem to be concerned about me judging collectively and then you talk about lazy and corrupt greece help me uh unravel that conflict if you don't mind uh well um yeah, I guess that's that's a bit of a problem. Um, but okay, let's talk about the let's limit it to the Greek government. Oh, I know. I mean, I think if the Greeks didn't want free stuff, they wouldn't be in the disaster that they're in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but can you truly say that your all of Europe is one collective in the same way that Greece is as a as a you know n- nation and a people? Well, I don't know that I've ever said all of Europe is one collective. I certainly refer to Europe as as an institution in the same way that I refer to North America as an institution. And Europe as an institution, given that there is the EU with what, like 28 member states who basically have given up border controls, there is, if you, if Europe is starting to define itself collectively, common currency uh, and current common, um, common immigration and, and border control or lack of border controls, it's not that unrealistic. And and this to contrast Europe to some place like North Africa, right, which is not that far from from Greece uh, and from Italy, is important, right? Like if you talk about North America, you're talking about a European, largely Protestant-based civilization. And if you're talking about South or Central America, you're talking about a Mestisto, largely Catholic, um, and other religion style of a civilization. So yeah, you can make some generalizations as a whole, but certainly I wouldn't want to say that all European countries are the same. I mean, I get that. But um, uh, the degree to which Europe has surrendered to a collective is the degree to which it's not completely unjust to refer to them in collective terms. Mm, well, but have they? Um, you know, you, you see, like, I think maybe if you only read the headline news, I, I can see the perspective. But if you... You know, there's growing movements in all sorts of countries with huge EU skepticism. Many countries haven't had a even a 50% majority for that were pro-EU in, in decades. Uh, so um, I think it's, you know, in many ways we are taken hostage by this big political system rather than 
you know, it's not like the, the will of the people kind of thing. Even if there was such a thing. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And I, I'm not, I mean, I've never, I, I think that voters have some influence of where their governments go. But certainly, um, it's more a reactionary influence. But um, I'm not sure what it would take for me to think that Europe was beginning to wake up and save itself. I don't know what it would look like. But do you have any thoughts on what what, what to you would be clear indication that you'd bet your money, uh, your life savings on Europe's long-term survival and, and growth? Well, um, at least I, I'm, you know... The- looking positively at the trends from like Austria, for example, where the immigrant skeptic, Euro skeptic party has like 34% of the vote or in Denmark with 25 or even Sweden with 18%. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not a majority, but it's getting to the point where the politicians are finding it harder and harder to ignore. And of course, that won't change things tomorrow. But I'm, I at least have a have a hope that it might change things, you know, over a year or two. Okay, so um, when I don't know all of the details of the laws about this, and my understanding is that if you are, the EU is is starting to talk about drawing up a list of countries that they will not accept refugees from because they're relatively stable countries, and therefore. Right, but I mean that's—I mean they're just people would just get fake papers or no papers and claim that they're from whatever war-torn country we're getting them entry. So I don't know, you know, and, and Greece recently began to deport some migrants to Turkey. I think the last couple of days, but it's like five hundred, and they're paying Turkey an enormous amount of money that Greece doesn't have in order to take these migrants. So it's—it's it's just a gesture. It doesn't change the. Um, the real facts on the on the ground. So I don't know what it would look like for Europe to say what they're going to do, but it would have to do with preventing further migrants, right? As I as I talked about recently, and I've heard estimates from between one and four million people are gathering in the north of Africa looking to make it across to Europe. Oh yeah. As as soon as the weather warms up. And here's here's the problem. And I I, I put this out as a prediction, which as always, I, I hope desperately, though I don't believe I will, I hope desperately to be wrong about this. But let's say that Europe decides to use force to prevent the migrants from entering the country. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen then. Simultaneous to that is you will face uprisings from the African ghettos within Europe. And so you will be facing a two-front conflict, to put it mildly. There will be domestic rebellions at the same time as you will need force on the borders of Europe. Now, I don't know the degree to which Europeans are aware of that or the degree to which Europeans would accept that. Or are they just hoping to buy five more minutes apiece every day? Yeah, that's certainly a great question. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, haven't thought that far. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's very difficult for for to affect change in in Europe the way it is right now because the EU is this huge bureaucratic break on everything. Uh, so for years, for example, in Denmark, the 
the the right wing parties have been trying to restrict immigration, but have been struck have had laws struck down by the EU, have had um, you know threats of lawsuits from the EU uh, EU court system and all sorts of things. Uh, I remember a few years ago that they tried having just simple border control, like, you know, checking that the car wasn't full of, uh, you know, it wasn't human smugglers or anything. But even that was met with with staunch resistance from the EU machine. Uh, So, yeah, I think there's there's some there's some hurdles to overcome before that anything will happen. Uh, But it, it will only take until the first the first country basically has the guts to say to say no to Brussels and saying, "Fuck you guys, uh, you guys, uh, you know, you're running us into the ground. We'll have to take matters into our own hand." And I think when that happens, most of the countries of Europe will will say, "Yeah, let's do that. Fuck those guys in Brussels." Uh, all respect for. And then, and then what? Okay, so so let's say that. Are you talking about exiting that countries will exit the EU? Not necessarily, but uh, step out of the Schengen, so close the borders, basically require immigration papers. And just, you know, just that would, would, oh, oh, uh, sorry, just that would force other countries to start doing the same unless they want to have all the immigrants. Uh, So say Denmark closes its border to Germany, then Germany has has to figure out, do we just, want to keep all the immigrants who are coming here want to go to Denmark or or we will we start closing our borders to the Czech Republic and Austria but why not just I mean you closing the borders is one solution but why not just deny welfare state benefits to people who've never paid into the system I mean what that, that wouldn't that be easier I mean that's a whole lot less government whereas the the borders and the walls and the checkpoints that's just more government I mean, isn't hasn't more government been the problem already? I mean, you had national governments and then you had the EU. And it wasn't like the EU got rid of the national governments. You just put another layer of government on, which caused all these problems. And now you're going to stay in the EU, but put more layers of government in for border controls. I mean, why not just, sorry, if you've never paid into the system, you can't get welfare. You, you, we don't give welfare to um to immigrants or to migrants and, and and certainly not to illegal migrants or immigrants um then you don't need the borders and because basically you're you're applying the same standards to people who want to go and work and travel through Europe who have incomes and professions and speak languages that are valuable in Europe and so on and you're saying well because there are economic migrants we now have to institute all these border controls to control all the Europeans whereas that's just more government. And it's not like more government has solved any problems so far. So why not have just a little less government and just say, nope, I mean, the welfare state's a bad idea as a whole, but it's a particularly bad idea and economically completely unsustainable for people who've never paid into the system. I mean, that's like me going up to the insurance company and saying, hey, my house just burned down. I need you to buy me a new house. They say, well, did you buy insurance? Nope. Well, can't help you, right? I, I agree from from a rational perspective, that would be much more a much more sane option. Uh, although I do not I think that's somewhat less likely for the socialist governments of Europe to do. But that's what I mean. So so, so the solutions are going to be for Europeans to run to more and more government. That's what I mean when I say that, that this is what Europeans are going to do. And that's why it's doomed. Well, yes, but isn't this this situation very anal- analogous to what's happening in the in the US at the moment where, you know, their solution is also to build a wall and 
and not to deny uh, Mexicans uh, entry to the U.S. No, it's it's different in America because in America there's such a population of non-Europeans that this is the last chance Americans have to have an election where smaller government parties, at least nominally smaller party governments, can get into power, right? So the demographics in America have changed to the point where it's impossible for Europeans to win an election. That's not happened in Europe as yet, right? Europe, the the, the immigrants or, or migrants are still a very small percentage of the population. In America, which is like Europe in a generation or so, uh, it has swung so far towards appeasing uh, illegal and legal immigrants from third world countries that America is in danger of losing all of its European traditions, its small government preferences, and so on. And this is, again, the urgency behind what's going on with uh, Donald Trump. So, for instance, I mean, Reagan was only uh, elected, um, what, 20, 36 years ago, in 1980. The demographics in America have changed that if the election were held again, Reagan would have lost significantly. Right. And so um, it, it is very close to the tipping point in America, where third world migrants who overwhelmingly vote for lower taxes and higher government spending and more government benefits, that they are overwhelming the entire political system in America. So it is not uh, close to that in Europe. And I just also wanted to mention too, and you need to police yourself, if I can put it that way, significantly because, and I use these terms too, but I was just thinking today, what does it call, what, what does it mean to be a far right party in Europe? Are the far right parties interested in dismantling the welfare state? I don't think they are. Are they interested in dismantling government schools? Are they interested in having a, a private banking system? In other words, not a central bank, not a government-controlled banking cartel. Uh, are they interested in, in truly free markets? Are they interested in stripping away regulations and bureaucracy and licensing for people to get jobs? No. They're basically the exact same as socialist parties, but with border controls. That's what's called the far right. So apparently it's far right now to be a complete socialist with a customs agent. That's what far right has become, and it's completely ridiculous. But that's not your fault. I just sort of point, wanted to point that out. No, I, I agree. Uh, certainly. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah I, I don't know what to say. Um, so if, you, if Europe goes for more government, may, maybe, maybe it's a short-term solution. I don't know. I like... In America, maybe the wall is a short-term solution. I, do, I, I don't know. I don't know. I certainly know that what's – like if nothing is done, uh, America is done. Right? If, if nothing changes, America changes for the worst forever. Mm. And so in Europe, if the argument is – like if – sorry, let me rephrase this. If America can stem illegal immigration and keep third-world migrants out of America – then you can still have a political debate in America because the, the deck won't be overwhelmingly stacked in favor of the socialists or the Democrats. So in America, the desperation is around, is it possible to even have any kind of political debate in America or have the socialists simply won by stacking, by importing people who are going to vote for them? Low information. It's funny, people call Trump supporters low information voters, but apparently illegal Immigrants who can't even speak English who vote for the left, uh, they're apparently totally high information voters. But anyway, um, but in Europe, you can still have some sort of discussion. Now, of course, the problem in Europe, as you pointed out, is that people can face significantly negative repercussions for speaking out against the migrants. Oh, yes. And that is that is a big problem. 
In which case, there's not no Europe in particular to defend anymore because there's no freedom of speech. Like, what are we working to defend? I mean, well, I mean Europe is is dead and has been for some time. Uh, you know, the, maybe the maybe the hair is still growing, maybe the fingernails are still growing, but I can't detect a pulse. If people are saying, "Well, there could be negative repercussions to speaking out, and therefore I won't do it, even anonymously, even among my friends, even among my family," I'm just then then the European ideal of robust debate, of public debate is is done. And the Europe has been silenced and uh, um, all is over by throwing some dirt on the coffin and uh, having a short eulogy in Arabic and uh, walking away. Yeah, but I, again, I don't see that as very much different from what you have in the US. I don't know Canada that much, but where, you know, any discussion of race or immigration is is you know shouted down with ah racists um no 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 i get that i get that but i'm talking about i don't know about the laws in europe i like i don't know if it's illegal to say negative things about migrants i mean if it's if it's just social disapproval like if if europe is like well i might receive social disapproval for trying to save my civilization so i'm just going to let it burn well then, then, then the civilization is dead. Like if, if, if people would rather have third world migrants bringing down, potentially bringing down their entire civilization. And, and I say that, that that's a possibility. And there's some arguments as you look at the demographics, like in, in Germany, uh, the, the whites, native Germans are going to be a minority, sort of 20 to 34 year olds. They're going to be a minority by the year 2020. That's four years away. That's four years away, for God's sakes. London is now majority non-white. In England, that's the city I grew up in. Mm. And so, if Europe is like, well, it's it's uncomfortable for me to talk about these things, and I don't like being called any bad names, so I'm just going to surrender the entire cathedral of Western liberties and economic freedoms that have been built for the last 2,500 years, and I'm going to take a slow liquid dump on the skull of Socrates because I'm just I'm nervous about being called names. Well, then Europe is already dead. There's nothing. There's nothing to protect. I just see there's a growing movement of people who are not taking it anymore and are actually speaking out. And good, good. good. Well, then, then that's that's admirable, and I get that that's difficult, and I get that that's dangerous, and and so on. But um, this is, you know, I, I don't know if people have lost the ability to 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 see the dangers that are coming. But but so it's like people. Well, it's uncomfortable to talk about this stuff. It's like well. Um, you know, it's also uncomfortable for high levels of criminality and rape in your society. That's, that's kind of uncomfortable too. Or the fact that your taxes need to be raised to the point where the native born population can't even afford to have kids because all the money's flowing to third world migrants who have birth rates of three, four or five or six kids per woman. What the hell is that going to do to the country over the long run? So people are like, well, it's uncomfortable. It's like, you know, it's a lot more uncomfortable down the road if you have insurrections or you have people trying to take over your government and so on, right? I mean, if if someone, Bob, goes to some country and says, I want to come into your country, I want to take money for free, and I also would really like to overthrow your government, do you think he's going to be let in? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, does Sharia law recognize non-Islamic governments as legitimate, or should they be replaced with Islamic governments and Sharia law? Well, yeah, I, I think we agree here. I, I'm not going to defend the, the left-wing perspective here. Um, oh, no, I'm not talking about the left-wing perspective. I'm talking about the people who don't speak up. This is not to you. This is just to other Europeans who are listening. You know, it, 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 
it's not going to get easier from here. Every, every five minutes you don't speak up is five minutes more disaster for Europe. It's not going to be easier tomorrow. It's not going to be easier next month. And it's sure as hell is not going to be easier in the summer when you've got millions of people paddling across the Mediterranean trying to get into Europe. Now is the time to speak, not five minutes from now, not tomorrow, not later. Get a dinner party, get people over, bore them with facts, show them graphs, give them information. For God's sakes, it's not going to be any easier later on. This idea that, oh, you know, I'll quit smoking when I'm 90. You won't be alive when you're 90 if you keep smoking. It's not going to get easier. It has to be done now. And it's not happening yet. And it's not happening in the kind of size and speed and power and and integrity and energy, which is necessary. And by the time it shows up in people's faces, it will be too late. And this is the urgency that the Europeans don't get at the moment. This is the urgency, at least, that Americans are getting, which is, again, why Donald Trump. But this is not the urgency that Europeans are feeling, and they need to. Yeah, you know, I th- I think well, I think you're overstating it a little bit there. If if there's like as many as 34% of the vote in Austria who are supporting a party who wants to do something serious about this, you know, is that is similar numbers to what Trump is getting on the polls. But but on the whole, yes, I agree. You know, we need to, you know, 34% isn't enough uh Oh no, no, and I'm 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 sorry. I'm I really apologize for interrupting, but this is such an important point. And again, maybe you get it, but I got to get it out to the other people. So I'm sorry about that, Fred. But voting, let's say, let's say that in Austria tomorrow, a party is voted in that wants to close the borders. That is only the beginning of solving the problem. And the problem is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Oh, yeah. Right. So it's not just, well, I, you know, if I can convince people in these voting and they get the, no, 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 no. Because if people want to close the borders, they're going to face a huge amount of abuse. They're going to face a huge amount of internal insurrections, right? All the European countries, as far as I know, and with some exceptions, of course, have significant black or Islamic or North African ghettos. Mm-hmm. And those people are waiting for their friends and family and their reinforcements to arrive. Right. They went there with the goal that millions more Muslims were going to go there. Now, if that's cut off, then there's not that much reason for them to be there. I mean, obviously, they're going to stay and they're going to enjoy the welfare state, but, you know, life gets kind of boring when you don't have a job and you can't get married, And right? I mean, it's not great. And so let's say you cut off the borders. That doesn't solve the problem. First of all, these people are still having babies way outside the rates of the domestic population. And there may very well be insurrections or rebellions or riots. And what's going to happen then? So the idea, well, I just, I'll convince people to vote for this party that's going to close the border. Let's say that's just the beginning of trying to solve the problem. And so people need to have the information that they need in order to be able to stomach what comes next. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And and I also I didn't mean it to imply that these thirty four percent or fifty percent voters who close the borders would would solve the problem. But it just 
it it's at least to me it serves as an indicator that there are at least some people who are willing to question the the party line that ah immigration is good and multiculturalism is great and and, and you know there are people who are people are starting to have serious doubts about whether the politicians are telling them the truth about this right and and all that needs to happen is people's da- doubts need to accelerate as much as the migration is accelerating because the, the the leaders don't care if you have doubts i mean if they want to destroy your country and i i don't want to get into the whole reasons as to why to this but having doubts is fine as long as they can get enough people in to destroy the country you know then it's like having doubts later who cares right i mean it's too late right so I, this is why, you know, I've been strongly urging for people, if you've got the truth, you need to put your relationships to the test. You need to push people uh, despite their discomfort, despite, you know, there's a phenomenon called an intervention, which you've probably heard of, which is if you have somebody who is uh, addicted to sex or or, or drugs or alcohol or, or something, some self-destructive, right, or a terrible relationship, an abusive relationship. If this person is spiraling into self-destruction, they're going to drag you down with them. And so what you need to do is you need to get everyone together. You need to get them around in a circle. And you need to tell them what they're doing, how it's hurting you, what they need to do to change, and you need to get them help. And you need to get them to commit to change. And the flip side of that is if they don't, you're cutting them off. Right. Now... This leftist multicultural suicidal fantasy is far more dangerous than one individual's drug addiction. Sure it is. And so people in Europe need to start staging interventions with these deluded leftists. And they need to say, what you're doing is destroying the entire culture. And the futures of my children. An individual drug addict can't take down the entire entirety of Western civilization, so to speak. And so people need to start having these interventions and having these facts and saying, look, you are with the truth and you are with the facts or you are against all that I hold dear in civilization. And I am cutting you off if you continue to work to promote an agenda that will destroy everything I hold dear. Right. And... I've been saying this for years, and people are like, oh, that's terrible, you know, threatening relationships. It's like, no, trying to save things, because the relationships aren't going to do too well in the future under an entirely different kind of government system than exists right now. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And I, I think we we agree on this mostly. I you know, I I may just be slightly more hopeful about Europe's future, but I'm certainly not saying this is certain. I I do see the danger and I'm not saying this will happen automatically but i'm hoping that me and others who push for people to accept reality will will be successful in time for it to matter but i fred i have no hope which is why i have so much energy in what i'm doing but hope in i'm not saying this is about you i'm just saying this is my thoughts about it in general hope in general is a way of anesthetizing yourself to the danger and what needs to be done. Because if you have hope, it's like, well, events are in motion, things are happening, people are waking up. And hope is a very dangerous thing, is a very dangerous thing. Optimism 
is a very dangerous thing because it's saying there are things occurring in society that are going to get me what I want. And I don't believe that's ever the case. Society changes because strong-minded, willful people act in a short-termedly, suicidally irrational fashion to promote facts and reality to deluded people. Society progresses because people take completely insane stands called the truth and bend society to their will through persistence and volume and repetition. And they do that because they have no hope. They have only will and action. Hope is a way of saying, well, the current is with me, so I don't need to swim that hard. But the reality is that the current is against you, and you have no hope of achieving it unless you cast aside hope and substitute will, work, effort, strength, courage. Because hope is a way of saying you need less than your maximum effort to get something done. And um, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it. I think that the world is going to go where strong-willed people want it to go. And so far, 60-odd countries have gone to Islam because they really want it so. They didn't hope that Islam was going to spread. They made it spread. They didn't have hope. They had action. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. That's very much against like the Protestants. Oh, let's you know, God will help us. But there's no. Yeah, if he's going to, well, we shouldn't probably put our too much hope in that because he didn't help all the other forty-eight countries. So, however many you said it was. All right. So I um I, I do not have optimism. I do not have hope, but. I will certainly do everything I can to continue to get the truth out. And um, up to, after that, it's up to every individual European to make a choice about how they spend the next 10 minutes. And um, that that will determine the future of their civilization. Your civilization. My civilization. That's where my roots are. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thanks, Fred. A great call. Um, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate the chat. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right, well, up next is Deepak. Deepak wrote in and said, After the immigration crisis in Europe, what do you think will be the future of dating within the continent? How will it affect native European males? And how will it impact minorities when it comes to dating European women? After the rise in the sexual assault incidents from a few bad migrants, do European women's attitudes towards migrants change, or do they just not care? Are they happy with a lot of the options they will have in the long run? That is from Deepak. Well, hello. Nice to chat with you. Yeah, hello. Yeah. So I'm a fan of yours. Uh, I'm following you since uh, September when I was... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm German, but I'm immigrant from India, actually. So I came here 2006, and uh, I worked in, uh, in IT as an IT consultant. And since uh, two years... I'm working as a dating coach and a dating uh, coach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm on, I have a YouTube channel also and uh, do you want to mention what it is? It is Vain Dating Lifestyle. All right. And uh, it's a bit controversial channel but uh, we show real life seduction and uh, on the basis of the when the people see they book me for my services and uh, I'm selling this uh, all over the Europe, all over the all over the world. So, so uh, since I'm I'm also like immigrant, so I I was uh, last year 
Uh, it started in September. This started this uh, immigration. Uh, immigration. Uh, the Angela Merkel said that the that they are uh, uh, importing the immigrants, uh, and um, uh, like I, I was a bit. Uh, I, I was uh, what you, what I can say like. Uh, I am for immigrants. I'm because I'm immigrant, but I was it. It was too much, like it too much. Uh, like I already there was a German form actually, and uh, I wrote uh, the consequences that can happen. So they actually banned me. That didn't like this was German form on Facebook. They banned me because I was telling that uh, this might can happen in future, and I already predicted that something like that happened, and it all it happened. So like uh, this. Uh, rapes and all this uh, because it was like to uh, assimilation of like a totally different culture in european culture so these days when i uh, i have also a lot of clients uh, who are minorities and who want to improve their dating life in uh, in europe and uh, they they wrote me uh, that uh, it is getting harder and harder to to if they want to meet a european girl then uh, they are they are they are seeing a bit different uh, uh, you can say with different uh, eyes compared to like two years ago and uh, it's getting i i i can see the difference like when i go out i can see the difference compared to like last year uh, the way people see i i don't know what you mean you mean that the european women are skeptical of the sexual market value of the migrants uh yeah like uh, uh what we what i what we teach is like uh, uh um, like meeting a woman like a complete strange woman on the street and uh, like uh, uh, starting the conversation and taking her number or like uh, after that meeting her and uh, uh, on a date and then having a relationship so this thing what we teach and uh, th- and this these are the my clients that they want to learn so they try this thing on the street in Europe, in Germany, and they see it is getting harder and harder for my, for minorities. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, I have like uh, fans from from Denmark, from Ge- from Germany, uh, from Sweden. Uh, they are like white native whites. They also wrote me that this problem. They said like it is it is getting harder for them also, and uh, uh, like because of it is uh, like uh, too much of options they are seeing right now the women are seeing too much of option and uh, they are they are demand their women are it is getting tougher for the whites also to get the women so uh, so Wait, this is yeah. it's getting tougher for white men to date white women is that right yeah like i have like uh, the there was a guy from sweden and some some people and they they told me that uh, it is it is not easy to date like Swedish woman because uh, now wait, so wait a white Swedish guy is going to an Indian guy to figure out how to date white women <laughs> yeah exactly okay yeah. <laughs> that that may be one of his problems but that's neither here nor there actually, right. I, actually I, have, I have clients like uh, the thing is like uh, I have clients like uh, white clients also and uh, minorities also and I do deal with them in a different way like uh, uh uh white clients are uh, the, I'm dealing that they, they are very much uh, I, that uh, this R selection and K selection, I I learned from your channel. So when I was uh, seeing this R selection, and I'm very much interested in dating. So these white clients, the, what I what I but they come to me, they have very much K selected behavior. So 
I I teach them like I I give them some R selected behavior so they have like you know uh, the 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 uh, combination of both. So R selected. Okay, well I don't I don't want to get into the advice that you give because okay, that okay. may draw into significant conflict. But um, so I'm not sure. Is is your question that if there's a culture that is very sexually aggressive, particularly to people not part of its own culture? that that may lower the sexual market value for women not in that culture? Is that your question? Like, let's say that Islam um, is is more concerned with the protection of the virtue of Islamic women than non-Islamic women. Are you saying that that will have a negative impact on the sexual market value of Muslim men to non-Muslim women? Yeah, something like that. Minorities, like, uh, yeah. Like if if the, if this uh, like uh, if there are too much of migrants here in in Europe and uh, these yeah. kind of so uh, like women are a bit defensive and the uh, you can say sexual market value will decrease or how what can be done to if a minority oh, want I'm to sorry I mean decrease from what I mean again maybe I'm misunderstanding but let's let's just say that there's a guy named Ahmed yeah and he's from Somalia yeah and he doesn't speak German. And he doesn't have a job. Yeah. What possible sexual market value would he have for a white German woman? Uh, Again, maybe I'm missing something obvious here. And, you know, you're you, maybe you're the expert yeah, in this. Okay, but okay, yeah, I, I don't know what like what I mean, they don't speak the same language. He doesn't have a job. They don't have any shared values. They don't have any common cultural history. They have different religions or opposing religions. I mean, what possible sexual market value could he have? Uh, yeah, like that. That's 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 a different thing. Like uh, uh, he has no sex mark. He has not like sexual market value. But uh, for example, if a my if a migrant who is uh, integrated in the system, for example, for three years he's having a job, and um, he want to meet date a European woman, or for example, he's who is uh, in Europe for like five years so if a guy who minority who is for who is in europe for five years or, or and a minority who is who just came here uh, immigrant so they they both look like same i look like a minority for example i'm here for i'm german i'm here for 10 years so uh, so like uh, if i if i'm talking to a like uh, uh, if uh, if i'm talking to a like european on the street then uh, it is getting tougher compared to uh, like uh, one year ago when it was that there was not migrant crisis so all right so hang on a sec now I, this is from a site called jihadwatch.org so i you know i'm not gonna i've not verified this and you know i'm not even sure how i could but this is an article by a fellow named robert spencer that was published january 17th 2016 and um according to a female alazar prof allah allows Muslims to rape non-Muslim women. The seizure of infidel girls and their use as sex slaves is sanctioned in the Quran. According to Islamic law, Muslim men can take captives of the right hand. The Quran says, O Prophet, lo, we have made lawful unto thee thy wives unto whom thou hast paid their dowries, and those whom thy right hand possesses of those whom Allah hath given thee as spoils of war. And it extends this privilege to Muslim men in, uh, in general. The Quran says that a man may have sex with his wives and with these slave girls. And uh, we'll put a link to this below. And um, uh, I, that's, not, that's not the European tradition, <laughs> to put it mildly, right? And so I don't know if the more Muslims, you know, I, I certainly feel sympathetic towards you in that maybe you're mistaken for some of these people. 
but um yeah the more of this um the more of the and of course in north africa a, a, a third of the men have admitted to raping a woman yeah a third of the men have admitted to raping a woman and so if you have an ideology that allows for this behavior and you have it practiced shockingly in a area that believes in this ideology then of course that's going to make it not high sexual market value to a woman who doesn't want that behavior to put it mildly so so the question is like uh, will it uh, if in a long run like uh, but at the same time women is having a much more uh, options like in europe like uh, because uh, if we see like from uh, this last year o over 1 million migrants there are a lot of uh, are young male so gender ratio is is changing no 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 you you're not listening to what i'm saying man <laughs> sorry dibak they don't have sexual market value to european women Okay. So when you say well, so it's it, I mean to to put it coarsely it's like you have a bunch of ripe fruit and you have a bunch of rotten fruit and you're saying well you have more choice in your fruit no I don't because I don't want the rotten fruit so the fact that there are more men there that the european women generally don't want to date yeah I'm, exceptions here and there or whatever right but in general the fact that uh, Ahmed is coming from north africa and you know 30% chance he's raped a woman and he has an ideology that allows him to do that to be sexually aggressive to put it mildly towards women and he's probably got a lower IQ by far than the european women and he doesn't speak their language like this is just fruit i don't want so this is not expanding women's choices of who to date okay i mean i'm i'm happy to you know hear where i'm incorrect this is just my thoughts uh, on on the issue Now the media the media of course is promoting interracial like you can't turn on a show that comes out of Hollywood without interracial couples being promoted left right and center but they don't generally work like even in um in America when you have interracial couples like black white couples um in particular which is the most studied um they tend to not last as long they tend to be more subjected to things like domestic violence charges they tend to get divorced more uh, they tend to be more dysfunctional and these are cultures that have you know these are racial groups that have grown up side by side for hundreds and hundreds of years and all speak the same language and the blacks are christians and a lot of the whites are christians so they have a huge amount more in common and the relationships are still hugely pro problematic relative to um other kinds of of relationships. So um I I you know I don't see how how it fits. So at the all. the thing is like uh, I I have clients for I I I I get the like uh, people minorities who want to date european women. So so what you what 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 is your own thought on that? Like what you will like uh, raising sexual market value or I mean they are, the the clients I get they are not like uh, like uh, refugees they are they are but they are still minorities so for example Indian guy like me uh, who is who is having, But sorry why I, why do they why do they want to date european women because they feel attracted towards uh, european women like that, that's why Um, but um it's their I'm sexual sorry, preference. No, do, do they not they're not attracted to women of their own race and culture uh no like if they don't uh, like uh, if um... so they have negative view they have a negative view of the women they grew up with they have a negative view of the women who raised them and they are not attracted at least to the same degree to the women who raised them and who they grew up with uh it, it's it's not negative view like uh, i i for example uh uh i'm indian but uh, i i prefer uh 
a European woman. And uh, why? But why? Because I feel attracted towards European women. So. I know that. That's the same way. Of course, I know you feel attracted. <laughs> the question is why. Um, I I don't know. Like it. This is how. What's what's wrong? What's wrong with an Indian woman for I, you? I don't feel attracted towards Indian women. So I know that. Yeah. Why? Because you grew up with them, you understand them. They raised you. I assume your mom raised you, and so on. You had aunts and grandmothers, and so on. So what is negative about Indian women for you that you don't want to date or marry them? Uh, how, how, uh, I cannot answer, like, because it, uh, I am, for, uh, for example, uh, it's the same like uh, some women attracted towards uh, um, Asian guy, or it's very rare, but some European women attracted towards uh, black guy. Wait, so or, you, you, or, or you, you want to talk about how to date people, but you don't even know why you're attracted to who you're attracted to? Uh, <laughs> Um, do do you find do, is it like if you were to think of going on a date with an Indian woman? I don't necessarily mean from India, but maybe one yeah. who'd come across uh, to to Germany. Yeah. If you if you somebody offered you a date with an Indian woman, yeah. why wouldn't you want to go? Right. I assume it's not just physical attraction because that's very shallow, right? I mean, it's not. It's got to be something more than just you don't like brown skin. Right, that you're racist against Indians. Like it can't just be. It's a particular. You like blonde hair because you know, blonde hair turns gray and gets like you know. If you want a lifelong relationship with someone, you understand it can't just be based upon. She's got big tits, or you know, like it can't. It can't be based upon shallow things. It has to be based upon her character, on her personality. Yeah, right? exactly. Because yeah. you're talking about long-term dating prospects here, mm-hmm. and so if. If there's something wrong with Indian women for you that you don't want to date them, then I, I kind of want to know what it is for you. Like, what no, is there's, negative there's, about there's Indian nothing women? Wrong. There's nothing wrong uh, for an Indian woman, but uh, it is something that uh, um, I prefer. Like, I, I don't even prefer, like, German women. I prefer more, like, East European. So even I don't prefer, like, a particular white. Like, I don't prefer, uh, like, Austri- like, American or English or German. So it has it has nothing to do with the woman's personality at all. It is merely the is, physical it is, characteristics. Uh, it is is the personality that uh, uh, the the Okay, good, good. So now we're talking about character and personality and so you find that Eastern European women have better personalities or are nicer than Indian women, which again be- brings me back to what is not nice or not good about Indian women for you. Uh, no, I, I I never feel attracted towards Indian women. So, like for example, oh, dude, I have dude, a friend. You drive me crazy here. You say Eastern Europeans, the women are nicer or better, or you know, it's not just a look; it's something to do with their personality. Yeah, so, if you prefer one kind of personality, like if I say, look, I only date extroverts, right? I only date really outgoing women. Yeah, I don't like the shy wallflowers who you know uh, sit and turn into question marks reading their Kindle on a soft couch or beanbag. And they say, well, I don't like introverts because then I would give you a list of things that I don't like about introverts. You know, they, they tend to be kind of boring. They tend to not want to go. I like to mingle with people. I like the nightlife. I got to boogie and they just want to stay home. Like there's incompatibilities or something. Now, this is not to say that introverts are bad. It's just mean that they're not suitable for me based upon personality characteristics. So if you're talking about mere 
physical characteristics. Like she could be Satan, but with blonde hair and I'd still want to bang her. That's one thing. But if you're talking about personality characteristics, like Eastern European women are whatever, like a lot of Western women like Eastern European women because they've not been poisoned by generations of feminism. So there would be particular characteristics around Eastern women. But so then my question would be, if you like Eastern women for their personality, then there must be something that you don't like as much about the personality of Indian women. And that's what I want to know about. Yeah, the thing is like... the they're both two both things like i need to be like physically attra- like she need to be uh, i find her i should find her physically attractive and then the character should also like you know the, the, what kind of character i am looking for so with uh, i have like i have dated a lot of german women i have dated a lot of uh, eastern women and the what i have seen like uh, if, right, right now i'm talking about uh, like uh, the with eastern women uh, there's uh, they are good looking at the same time they they are not having this feminism so they are more feminine so so i that's why that they listen to me what i'm what i'm saying and all so so and it is very easy for, for it is for easy for me to have a relationship with them and when i'm when talking about like indian women so i don't find for me i don't find them uh attractive so like it, it it we are not talking about first the first the if the physical attractiveness is there then we talk about character so we are not reaching the character with indian women um, they must be having good character but if i'm not finding them if i'm preferring uh, physically attractive the european women then i will first go for them and then look for the woman who is having the 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 good character or personality so, okay, so what is it that you find unattractive about Indian women? Is it the brown skin? Is it the brown eyes? Is it the black hair? What is it that you find unattractive about Indian women? Uh, I I don't find them. Uh, uh, I don't find them like uh, for for me. I uh, there are a lot of people they find who find them uh, attractive, but I don't find them that physically attractive for me. Okay, I'm sorry, man, if Uh, you keep repeating yourself, if you don't want to answer the question, just tell me you don't want to answer the question. But not answering the question while pretending to is getting kind of annoying. There's something you find unattractive about Indian women. And since Indian women are differentiated from European women by particular physical characteristics, color of skin, color of eyes, texture of hair, uh, certain body types and so on. if If you don't want to say why you're physically unattracted to Indian women, I guess that's okay. I think it's not okay, particularly okay, then, honest then. of you since you want to talk about sexual market value. But don't just keep repeating that you're not attracted to them because you've established that about 20 minutes ago. You've yeah. got to tell me what it is that you don't okay, like then, uh, about them. It's okay. I have already told you that I, I cannot answer it. Like, uh, Okay. So what you're saying – but what you're saying is there are physical characteristics that you find physically unattractive. Sorry to repeat myself. There are mm-hmm. characteristics about Indian women, Deepak, that you find physically unattractive that you share. Right? So let's say you, you say, I don't like brown skin. Well, you have brown skin because you're Indian, right? Mm-hmm. If you say, well, I don't like black hair or dark hair, you, well, you have dark hair because you're Indian. I don't like brown eyes. Well, you have brown eyes. So whatever you say you don't like about Indian women, yeah. you're also saying you don't like about yourself. Is that not fair to say? So the thing is like, I, I'm not, I, I, I will not say I, I don't like something in, in, in them. I just don't find, I prefer like, 
I have to repeat it. I prefer the European woman. Like no, I get that. Okay, so if so I don't, want to I, I'm repeating the same thing. My, my so, sister is also Indian. My sister, my mother, my my parents are all Indian. So I know I know how biology works. I get, I get <laughs> so, that they're all Indian. Yeah. Um. So okay. So uh, even if you say, well, I'm not attracted to that, then you're saying that there are things that are not attractive about you. I mean, again, this is universalization. Also, I'm a little confused that if you say that you like Eastern European women because they're not tainted by, you know, man-hating feminism or whatever. Yeah. You find that a lot of Indian women are tainted by this man-hating feminism? Uh, um, I, I, I never, like, uh, I never... Uh, I have no contact with India, like uh, with India and Indian dating scene since many years, so I have no, no idea. You, you, sorry to interrupt, but but you're in Germany. There are other Indian people in Germany, right? I, I talked to one recently. Yeah, uh, uh, but I have not not too much contact with like uh, Indian women in Germany. I have I have Indian clients, but uh, male clients. Uh, okay, so. So then what you're telling me is it's not about personality, it's just about looks. Because you say, well, I like Eastern European women because they're more feminine. But then you, and you say, I like them more than Indian women because, what, they're more feminine than Indian women. But then you say, well, I don't really have any contact with Indian women. So you don't know the degree uh, to which Indian women in yeah, Germany may or may not be feminine. But right? I, 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 I live in India since, since like for my 26 years. So, so I, ha I, do have, I, I do know Indian women. So I, for 26 years, I, I live there so i'm here since 10 years so it's, so i do had contact with indian women oh so the indian women in india uh, are they more or less feminine than eastern european women I, I, at that time i was i have i was very like uh, on like i was very i have no idea like i at that time i was more focused on like uh, career and i was very not very good with uh, with this uh, i was I was not able to get uh, like a date to attract any woman at that time in India. So uh, I was I had no contact with women in India. Uh, like I was seeing them, but I was not able to get them to date me and all. Like I was not uh, what you can say. I was not really good with women in India. Okay, no, I get that. Well, maybe then you can answer me this. I mean, you. Uh, what about your um, What about your mother and your sister? or your aunts, or your cousins, uh, who are female, Yeah. do you have uh, any sense as to whether they are more or less feminine than Eastern European women? Uh, the, the, they are more, they are respecting the, uh, they are respecting the, um, the relation. Uh, but, uh, I, I will say, like uh, in the femininity, I, 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 um, it's the same. Uh, it's the same, but they are like. Uh, uh, I, I will say it, it's the same. Like, okay, so then Eastern European women and Indian women are the same in terms of the femininity that you like. You just don't like the way that Indian women look. Yeah, I yeah, you can say I. I will not say don't. I don't like them. Uh, I will just say I prefer like east europe no you said you're not attracted to them yeah 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 you can use, so yeah that's a negative right yeah okay so it, just for, yeah. for all all of the ladies out there in europe <laughs> if deepak wants to date you he he's only wanting to date you for your physical characteristics 
not to do with your personality because even though Eastern European women and Indian women are exactly the same or pretty much the same in terms of what he values the most, he won't date Indian women because of the way they look, but he wants to date white women because of the way that they look. So not only is that a little bit on the racist side, which is fine, but um, it is also very, very shallow, right? I mean, you're just saying, well, you want to find women with physical characteristics, everything else being the same, you want to not date women um, but you only want to date women with the physical characteristics that you like, and you want to not date women with physical characteristics you find unappealing, like brown skin and dark hair and brown eyes, which you yourself share. Uh, so, uh, this you know, is, that's, that's, that's yeah. just a bit confusing all around. Yeah, but this is what you're saying. Like, the, what I'm saying is that uh, I, I have a friend, like, I have a friend who is, who is, who is German. Uh, my business partner, who is a blonde, he's a blonde guy, and he he prefer he don't prefer East European woman, and he's uh, he's from uh, he's born in Latvia, and he he prefer like Brazilian woman, like black brunette or like uh, from from Brazil. And, and I, I would have exactly, woman. and I would have exactly the same conversation with him. You know, so so what you're saying is that you prefer European women merely for reasons of the way they look, nothing to do with who they are, but just the way they look. And I would imagine if that's the case, then wouldn't European women have particular preferences just based on the way that somebody looks? And either you're going to conform to that or you're not. I hope that things go a little bit deeper than that all around. But um, uh, the, um, uh, the idea that you can raise your sexual market value for intelligent. Look, there are people who have fetishes, right? And then the fetish can include a particular race or ethnicity. You know, I remember Tom Wolfe talking about Italian girls in one of his novels, that they were anti-intellectual and unbearably sexy. I just remember, I can't remember which novel Mm -hmm. he was uh, talking about it. And um, so you can have a particular fetish for, you know, a body part or a skin color or a hair texture or whatever it is, right? For whatever reason that developed in your life. Usually it's due to early sexual sexual imprinting, uh, which I've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And so people can have particular fetishes for a particular physical characteristic. That is a terrible basis for a relationship. I mean, if you want to have a fling or just a mere short-term sexual horribly ending affair usually that's one thing but in terms of a stable basis for how to raise children and how to like what would be the value again all other things being equal what would be the value of uh, what's do you have religion what's what's your religion i'm hindu you're hindu okay so let's say that some uh some german christian woman Mm-hmm. wants to date you and and let's say there's a german guy who's actually actually the thing same is the language let me finish uh, uh, same uh, language same background same history same culture same religion and so on you have you have to add a lot more to the deal to be able to close that deal right because um those are the challenges how is she going to integrate into hinduism yeah, the thing is like... And uh, how is she going to integrate into your family? Yeah. And do, does your family even speak German? Uh, maybe there won't even be communication issues. And how is it going to be for her? If she, if she marries some European or German boy down the street, then she marries into his family, right? Uh, marriage is about the, the unity of two bloodlines. It's about the unity of two entire family sets. And if your family's over in India... And let's say she has three kids and wants to stay home and raise them. She's not going to get help from your parents because they're in India. 
And even if they do come over, they're going to have very different language and culture and history and religion and so on. So there's going to be a value clash. And it all gets very complicated and very messy very quickly, right? There's a show called The Mindy Project where this uh, Indian girl uh, meets and marries. uh, I don't think she's even married, but she's shacking up and has a kid with this Italian guy. And her family doesn't exist. I mean, they're all over in India. That There's no clashes about religion. It's complete fantasy that there's no cultural clashes, no language barriers, no problems. Her parents don't even exist. Like, this is the fantasy that people have. But when you marry, if, if, a, if a European woman marries you, Deepak, she's marrying into your entire family. Uh, I can talk about myself. Like, I, I, will, I, I will say, like, the, about what in my past what happened. Like, I when I came, so I had a relationship with a German woman, German girl. And then... Um, we had a kid and uh, she told me that uh, I'm liberal with the re- this religion thing and all. I'm not really uh, too much like uh, uh, conservative with the religion. She told that uh, it is better to, to have the child uh, raised as a, as a Christian and uh, so that he will be having no problem in the school and uh, as a Christian name. So I was agree with that and, uh, and he's raised as a as a Christian, he's not raising. He's not raised as a like Hindu. I'm not really, and he was. She was also with me in India, and we didn't have any problem because she she speak German. I speak German, and she speak also English. And my parents my parents speak English, and uh, we didn't have any problem. But but they're not she, going she, to move to Germany to help raise kids, right? Uh, like, yeah, like she's she's raising kids, yeah. So. No, I mean, sorry, if, if you got married to a woman, look, raising kids takes a lot of resources. And if the mother-in-law is, or the father-in-law for that matter, are not around, um, it, it's a challenge. It's, it's just a negative. That, I mean, these are just basic sort of practical facts about the whole point of dating and sex, which is to have kids, right? But it can, it can also happen in the same, same, if she would be marrying, like having a, like a, a German and they are like living somewhere in another country or they are living some other state where they, they, they have not have access to their... No, I get their, that. I get that. But it's their... more likely that the family, like you have an accent, right? So you came to Germany and it's more, I mean, just talking about from a woman's point of view. And so if she's going to be talking to you automatically in her unconscious, she's going to be processing that your family is probably not going to be available to help her raise the kids. I mean, just, I'm just telling you the facts of sexual market value, right? Which means that this is sort of a negative for the resources she's, who are going to be available. A woman's sexuality is all around designed, is, is all designed to calculate the resources that the man can bring to bear on the problem of mm-hmm. raising kids, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole, the, the, the huge giant sucking sound of resources going into kids. Uh, that is what women are unconsciously calculating, which is why they like tall guys and handsome guys and, and rich guys, because Height is a measure of economic success and physical health, and um, handsome is a mark of even features and good gene set, which means less chance of developmentally problematic kids. And rich means that there's resources. But of course, a wealthy man is going to be working a lot and therefore is less available for her to help to help her raise the kids, in usual, usually. Hmm. The, the most successful hunter is out there doing a lot of hunting because the whole tribe relies on him. And so she's going to look beyond the man to look at the, the in-laws that she's marrying into and seeing if they're available if the, if the man is going to be less available because he's making lots of money. And if the in-laws are not available, 
then that's a negative just in terms of her being able to access resources. Now, if she gets along with the in-laws and she loves them and they love her and they want to help raise the kids, that's very important because it can be a lonely business, uh, particularly in the modern world, raising children. Yeah, like, but uh, in in, uh, in um, German culture, they are not having, uh, the people are living not with, the, like in Indian culture, we are, we are like... Uh, uh, living with all together, but in German culture they are not living. Though they are, li- it it is it may or may not happen that in laws help them. So because uh, well, there's a difference between helping and living with, and I'm sure you understand that, right? So yeah. there's also again, I don't know if this happens at an unconscious level. It probably does, but we'll put a link to this below. Uh, below health and behavior risks of adolescents with mixed race identity. So let's say Deepak that you find your blonde goddess and you have a. Um, half Caucasian and half Indian kid, uh, you know, could be great, you know, could be, could be fantastic. Uh, what is it they say on some uh, biracial is God's Photoshop, you know, but anyway, <laughs> um, so there, there was a study that was done, uh, 2003 and, um, study compared the health and risk status of adolescents who identify with one race with those identifying with more than one race. Uh, Mixed-race adolescents showed higher risk when compared with single-race adolescents on general health questions, school experience, smoking and drinking, and other risk variables. Adolescents who self-identify as more than one race are at a higher health and behavior risks. Uh, The findings are compatible with interpreting interpreting the elevated risk of mixed race as associated with stress. Like, we're tribal, right? I mean, to, to a large degree. Uh, and there's there's a reason why you're not as tribal, right? Like why you want Caucasian women rather than Indian women, which we'll get into in a second. But um, we're, we're tribal. And if we grow up without a particular tribe around us, um, for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, that causes um, problems. It causes some mental health problems, some addiction problems, uh, and so on. So it's an elevated situation of risk, Right. Yeah, and Mike, I, uh, uh, you got you got a little more here. Yeah, there's this was put out a little while ago. It's something from OkCupid, which is a dating website, and they pretty much used the data from all the responses back and forth, mixed and match with you know gender and race to see who responded to who and what the ratios were, and it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. But one of the questions is, would you strongly prefer to date someone of your own skin color slash racial background? I just noticed Indian females. They answered to that question, 23% yes, 77% no. Indian males, 17% yes, 83% no. And if you, um, it's got it broken down by specific ethnicities. And uh, it's interesting, if you look at females, just females, across all racial lines, 46% are yes, as far as prefer to date someone of your own skin color slash racial background, and 54% are no. Whereas with males, 34% are yes, and 66% say no. So uh, the males seem to be more willing to go outside the lines, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you break it down by whites and non-whites... 45% of whites um, say yes to would you strongly prefer to date someone outside of your own skin color or racial background compared to 55% no. And non-whites, it's 20% for yes versus 80% for no. So I'll put this 
this in the show notes, but it's an interesting look at sexual market value as a whole. And it has lots of detail on response rates and it breaks it down and it's really fan fascinating to look at. So, Yes. Um, okay. So there's just sort of one more thing that I wanted to mention about this and then I got to move on to the last caller. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Is there something uh, you wanted to add? Yeah. The thing is like, uh, okay. So the question is, uh, okay, we were talking about myself. So the, the, the thing is like, uh, uh, for minorities, like, uh, who want to date because they, they, they ask what they want to date European women, they come to me. So that's what I want to discuss. Like my first minority and what was, and second is for, for like white European male, because I am concerned with like both, like, uh, uh, they also date, want to date in Europe and what will the future, like what will be the future? Because I have seen like, um, in my question, we, we, I, 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 I write that uh, the European male are not that uh, masculine uh, compared to the uh, Middle Eastern male. So will it will happen that uh, the women prefer a masculine male and the weaker male will be not able to get to date here and they will not able to get children on how how it how it will goes in future and what what like with all all this immigrant crisis and if if what they can do also what european male should do to avoid the situation well i i that's i don't know about all of that but i will say that in general you know the average iq measured in india is around 80 to 85 now obviously you're much smarter than that which is great but that is the average IQ in Germany, for instance, I think is 102, 103. Um, and yeah. among Caucasians may even be higher, right? So if you have, again, assuming there's some genetics involved in this and IQ does appear to be, you know, depending on who you ask, 50 to 70 to 80% um, hereditary. So one of the reasons it's possible why that you want to date the, the highest IQ group that you can find. And, and this is one of the reasons, like, why I saw this video. That, like, everybody loves Asian girls. It's like, well, yeah, but Asian girls are wicked smart, right? I mean, Asians, uh, East Asians uh, have, uh, I mean, sort of Orientals, uh, high IQs, 105, 106, and so on. And I guess maybe people want to date Jewish girls who have even higher IQs, but Judaism has this don't marry outside the faith. Although, of course, I know that a lot of Jewish girls do, but... Um, so uh, if you sort of look at the, the genetics uh, uh, and so on, that your, your best, if genetics are involved, right, Deepak, then your best chance to have smarter children is to have children with the highest IQ, IQ demographic that you can access. Do, do you, see what, you see, what, see what I'm saying? Okay. So like, okay. And so um, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the Chinese and the Japanese uh, women are are popular because, you know, they're made for a lot of people, they may be the highest IQ um, people, the group that they could, they could have, have children with so, so on it, the other hand, but yeah. sorry, but, but they also have very strong in-group preferences as a whole. Whereas uh, the Caucasian girls have for many decades been told uh, to, to have no in-group preferences, which is um, one of the reasons why there are lots of problems. <laughs> one of the many reasons. And so for you, um, I can completely understand from a sort of uh, try and have kids with the smartest group you can find that that would make 
uh, sense. And, you know, if you had to put money on it, the odds are that you would have a more intelligent child if you had, um, say, an East Asian woman to, to be the mother of your children than if you had, say... I don't know, a Somali woman or, or, you know, I think the lowest IQs are like the pygmies or the, the natives uh, in Australia and so on. And so this is just, you know, if you, if you want a tall kid, then you try and find the tallest group around and, you know, have, have them part of your gene pool and so on. And it's the same thing with intelligence. Um, this has been specifically, you know, denied and excluded from Western thought for a couple of generations, although that hasn't changed the basic facts of the situation as far as, can be ascertained. So, you know, if you, because I was kind of asking you why, 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 and you didn't know. And then one of the, um, one of the answers may be that genetically you are looking to try and find um, the, the, the most success for your child, which would be to have a kid with the smartest group that you can find. And that's one, one possibility. And um, I don't know the degree to which that can be uh, changed. Um, but uh, if, if I were to give advice to the migrants, uh, I would say, um, okay, <laughs> yeah, get, get as much of education as you can, get as much of a job as you can, uh, be a, you know, commit to peaceful parenting, uh, reject irrational ideologies, whatever you're subjected to, learn about European history, speak the language uh, fluently, and uh, you know these would be the best. Uh, things now, of course, there is still the regression to the mean as far as intelligence goes, which people can look up if they want. I've talked about it before, but that would be my advice. But I don't know the degree to which these uh, basic biological facts can be overcome or not. So anyway, appreciate the call. It was very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for bringing the subject up. I always find it fascinating to talk about uh, sexual market value. And um, uh, we'll talk again, maybe. Okay, no problem. Uh, and uh, it was good to talk to you. Uh, thank you. Finally. <laughs> okay. Appreciate it. Okay, then. Bye. All right. Well, up next is Thomas. Thomas wrote in and said, My hometown in the city that I am currently living in, Hong Kong, is listed on the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom as the world's freest economy. And as such, I've noticed many libertarians seem to look up to the city as either someplace that they will want to move or an example that the West can emulate. However, in my honest personal experience, the city is perhaps one of the most non-intellectual and anti-philosophical places that I've ever been in, especially when compared to the West, even with all the madness with political correctness and the like. What will, you advise, what will your advice be to someone who lives in a society that is simultaneously the freest in the world economically, and yet is utterly philosophically empty at the same time? That's from Thomas. Hi, Steph. Hey, Thomas. How you doing? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Well, maybe not if I have to ask that question. So I'll just be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not too well. I'll just like, explain myself for a bit. I am. I recently. Um. Well, I'm from Hong Kong. I'm a native. However, um, I've been away from the city for a while. I have been studying in Beijing for like four years, like in like the most unfree part of China, perhaps, like you know, center of the communist government. Then I moved to the UK for university for four years. Now I'm now I've just graduated and is back in town, and you know I'm doing my first job right now, first long like long term job, but it's like which requires a interactive like Hong Kong people on a daily basis. And one of the things I notice about like well, like, you know, um, like libertarians or like you know the people in general or like you know Western people in general is like they're really critical of the West, like saying oh the West is doomed, we are a suicidal culture, blah blah blah. Oh, you guys have it so much better over in Hong Kong, or at least just 
saying, yeah, it's like, you know, oh yeah, China is like, you know, they're, they're the future and stuff. But for me, it, like, actually being someone on the ground and being, I have the unique advantage of like both being a Chinese person and I spend a significant amount of time overseas because when I was in Beijing, I was in an international school. So yeah, it was like actually more Western like, than, like, than China. But so when I come back and I speak the language, I know the culture, and I just see a, a lot of stuff that, you know, if you're a Westerner, you just don't see. Like, for example, I tried to organize like libertarian meetup groups and like FDR meetup groups in Hong Kong. I never got more than like one person to show up, like oh, one person besides myself. And they are oh, always... Oh, dear. Like, yeah. That's why I'm no longer in a group because I'm ashamed. It's like, you know, I am not a meetup organizer if I can get one person to show up. And they're always like what expats, you know, Americans. Like there is like they're in the city for like maybe a year, a few months to full work. It's like, I cannot get a local person to sign up. And yeah, so when I try to talk to like people about it, it's like, it's literally like I'm saying to them, like, because like, they just don't know what, what are you talking about? Like, you know, limited government. Oh, so you hate the poor. It's like, you know, no, they don't, they don't even say that. It's like, they literally cannot comprehend like what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, there's a government. Yeah. It's like, there's a state there. It's like, you know, yeah, we need to do this stuff. It's like, we're talking about like there it's like i'm saying you know how to eat your own head like or like something like that it's like they it's like i have easier time talking to like western leftists because at least like they understand what i'm saying even if they think oh you're a bad person and higher like people even either don't think about it or they they just like cannot comprehend what i'm saying and i just feel like really lonely and yeah so i just spend my days like on my way to work listening to your podcast and like dan carlin and like your the ruben report just to like stay sane. So yeah, it's, yeah but however, so, other, so yeah. this, this conversation better not suck for you because it's kind of an oasis, right? Oh yeah, that's why I wrote like on my, uh, on one of like my donations, like, yo, thank you because like this is like an oasis for me. Like seriously, like, yeah. Right. Well, look, first of all, I really appreciate your support. Um, and secondly, I mean, I've, I've had two days to think about this, so I'm afraid I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't want to interrupt uh, what it is that you want to say uh, on this topic. Just one, one, one last thing, I guess. It's like, you know, a lot of like um, my Western friends, like regardless of like their political views, they sometimes always say, oh, why don't you move to the West? Why don't you move to America? Like for me, it's like, well, Hong Kong is the freest economy in the world. So zero percent, you know, zero VAT tax. Like, um, so it's, things are much cheaper. You know, like it's the easiest place to start the business, as like um you might, as like people might have seen on YouTube when it comes to like um John Stossel's like show, and like you know, for me, it's like on my own experience as a fresh grad, I have like a degree in like you know the humanities, so a liberal arts, so I could get a job. It's like I could get a job easily, you know, not easily, but you know, compared to the West, in which like most of like my fellow, um, like the other students that went to university with me, like they are like. They couldn't find a job because it's like so hard to hire in Hong Kong. Like when my first job as like you know a restaurant server is like literally, oh you want to work? Sign here, sign here, done. Or like, come in next week. Oh you want to quit? Sign here, done. Like, you can't do that in like the West, like as in, like in Europe, you cannot do that. So for me, it's like wow, it's like intellectually defoid. It's like hey, I am making good money. Well, yeah, for a fresh grad anyway. So. And Thomas, what do uh, people um, that you talk to, what do they think of what Europe is doing at the moment? Well, that's a disturbing thing. It's like when you read like, you know, um, a lot of like people, like they look at Europe and I can see them like they're saying, yeah, look at Britain. They have the, the National Health Service. Like, oh, this is so good. We should have it. We should be more like Sweden. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like for me, it's like this is like disturbing. And 
But the sad thing is, one of the reasons why Hong Kong is the freest economy is because, like, first the British, which like they want us, you know, like you are a colony, you are like tax ghetto. You guys work more, more, much more efficiently. Like if you don't, you know, if you don't have like all this nonsense, so keep working. And now, you know, the quote unquote communist government, which like you know, people want free stuff, and so they, they say, yeah, we should have like free kindergarten. Yeah, we should have like we should have like free stuff. But the government just say, shut up, go back to work. Don't care. Yeah, we're not elected anyway. We're appointed by Beijing, so yeah, go back. Yeah, so that's one of the things that is like really disturbing and like sad for me. It's like yeah, like people like we are the freest economy because of like you know authoritarianism. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, of course, Hong Kong is a little island of historically left behind classical liberalism in that the British were in charge and the socialists were busy screwing up England, not Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. And so when Hong Kong gained its independence, what was it, 99? When Hong Kong gained its independence, it had this momentum. It's like I'm sorry? 97, like back to China, 97, yeah. Right, okay, late 90s. And so, yeah, it, it's sort of a, a little example of classical liberalism that was not generated by the East Asians, but was generated by British economic philosophy and, and classical liberalism. But um, the, the, the socialists all went and screwed up England rather than destroying. So you got a little bit left over. So anyway... Um, no, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very big question. It's a very big question. Let me ask you this and uh, maybe it's a fair question. Maybe it's not, but I'll ask it anyway and you can tell me what do you think is the level of empathy in the people in Hong Kong? I'll just be honest. Like, um, it's really low. It's like for me, it's like, mm. you know, it's, it's like for me, I could like literally feel I'm I'm becoming a, a less like empathetic person like since I moved back, and it's like literally less than a year because it's the only way for you to stay sane. Like for me, right now I'm working a job in like front desk at like a private school, like private like education center. I have to like turn my brain off, like turn my empathy off if I don't if I don't want to go insane because near exam time, you could hear like parents hitting their kids. You can hear like you know just like oh it's like parents coming and saying oh my son is not doing well. I want him to sign up for like a I'll punish him by signing up him for like free courses so that, you know, he doesn't have free time. And it's really densely packed. So in my apartment, again, during exam time, if I open like my windows, I could hear parents hitting their kids on two floors below. And like, you know, it, this is normal. So this is like, again, this is normal. So I just have to turn my brain off after that, you know, shut it off and just like put on my earphones because it just, yeah, this, is how, this is how it's like. And yeah, and the thing is, when you talk to like Westerners, like you know, a lot of them they're saying, "Oh, Hong Kong, yeah, that's good." It's like, oh, but the thing is that you know, like the way I tell my friends that you know, if you are an outsider that comes into Hong Kong and like Chinese society in general, you belong to a different social caste. You don't see a lot of the things that you know a guy like me, like you know, can see. And even if you do, like, you don't speak a language. Like you don't hear what they're saying behind your back or even in front of you, or even like, around you. So. Yeah, it's not empathetic. Right. And this, you know, according to, you know, I've got the the book, um, the, um, the, the, the boy Lloyd DeMoss, the, um, the book on child abuse and, and war, which is available at freedomainradio.com slash free. And the brutality of a lot of the East Asian child raising practices. Um, yeah, I did a video years ago on the, the tiger mom. Right, the woman who was just yeah, yeah. screaming at her kid and hitting her for not 
doing the piano right. And and now I was just reading recently that, you know, the, the kids are doing fine because one of them has joined the military, is going to spend the rest of her life investigating sexual abuse and rape in the military. Yeah, I guess that's called doing fine these days. But anyway, um, uh, so there's a lot of brutality in child raising uh, in the East Asian cultures. And um, that, of course, produces what is famously the sort of uh, emotionless, uh, impassive, inscrutable, conformist, um, you know, uh, slave to the boss and tyrant to the employee kind of hierarchy that goes on in uh, some aspects of East Asian cultures. And so I would assume that it is a lack of uh, empathy that that comes about maybe as a result of certain biological reasons, which I don't even imagine anybody knows about, but most directly uh, as a result of abusive and violent child abuse practices, particularly in the realm of verbal abuse. And um, that as a result means that there's not as much empathy. Now, if you don't have empathy in your character, you don't have much use for universals, right? Because universals are what are the moral rules for everyone? which means you have to have a surrender of in-group preferences. You have to have empathy for rules that apply to other people. Like, you can see as, as more traumatized people flow into the American educational system, particularly the college system, there's a massive fascist-style intolerance where people are, like, freaking out because somebody wrote Trump 2016 on some steps in chalk. Naturally, of course, all of the trolls then come out with the chalkening where they want to write this everywhere and Trump gets even more free advertising. But as more traumatized people come in, they lack empathy because they've been traumatized and free speech requires significant amounts of empathy because you have to um, protect the speech of people you significantly disagree with. That requires a certain amount of empathy for your future self in that you don't want repressive weapons used against you and empathy even for people you disagree with. That's a uniquely Western phenomenon that comes about because starting in the 18th and moving into the 19th century, Western children began to ra be raised more gently, more peacefully without the amount of, of rape and abuse and, and brutality that occurs so often in other cultures. And when I talk about third world cultures, I'm not even particularly talking geography, although it's associated with that. I'm basically talking about child brutalizing cultures. Uh, incredibly child brutalizing cultures cannot coexist in the West because the West in its modern incarnation is founded upon uh, empathy. And, and I know a lot of people, oh, there was imperialism and so on. Yeah, but it wasn't the same imperial. Like when the Chinese, sorry, when the Japanese went into China, uh, that was not the same as Western imperialism. Western imperialism was trying to bring the gifts of Western civilization through the white man's burden to the world as a whole, and it went badly sometimes, and it went well sometimes, but in general, it was a benevolent dictatorship uh, more along the Roman model, at least the early Roman model, than the later one, and they brought technology and, and science and medicine and, and railways and, and the rule of law and so on. And now, the best predictor of a third world country's economic success is whether it was at one time ruled by the British. So there was a lot of empathy going on in Western culture, Western civilization. It's gone a little too far now where Westerners are now demanded to empathize with people who have no empathy for them, which is not particularly beneficial to put it mildly. So as far as, you know, the economic freedoms are inherited from the British. And as you can say, people are all digging up the, grubbing around the roots of political power, looking to dig up their free nuts and berries. But um, uh, until the, the quality of parenting and the empathy of parenting in, improves or increases, there will be no particular drive towards universal universalization. Universalization is driven by empathy. Empathy is created by benevolent child raising. And if you're not interested in universals, 
what use is philosophy to you? It's yeah. no use at all because philosophy is all about the definition of universals, universal standards, universal rules, universal morals, universal principles. And if you don't have empathy, universalization doesn't strike you as even remotely important, doesn't cross your mind, and therefore philosophy seems completely useless. Yeah, it's like I have this example I once brought up in like an FDR like online meetup group. It's like um, there was like this. There's this restaurant near where I live. Like the owner has an open kitchen. He likes to chat with the customers. And one day the radio was on. It was talking about um, protesters who want like universal suffrage for Hong Kong. Then the owner he was like joking and said, you know, I don't care who is in charge as long as he gives me free stuff. He literally said that. Now I'm translating this like into, from Cantonese into English, and I couldn't help myself, you know, and I just said. Well, um, but, you know, the government doesn't own anything, you know. Where does the money come from? You're a business owner. You pay taxes. After talking for, for like five minutes, he eventually ran and said, yeah, you're completely right. Taxation is theft. They're just like stealing money from someone else to give it to like other people. But, but as long as you're stealing it from someone else and you're giving it to me, why should that be an issue? It's like originally I literally thought I'm finally getting somewhere. The first person in Hong Kong I've ever convinced that, you know, that these things are like, this is theft, this is not right. And he said, you know, yeah, you're right. But why should I care if they're stealing it from someone else? And it just don't make, you're a business owner. You know, you're a small business owner. They're going to tax you. You complain about like big corporations all the time. Who do you think you're side with? And he just said, yeah. No, but, but you're asking them to apply moral rules to a government when they were never able to apply moral rules to their parent. Yeah, I, I guess. It, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, listen, I, I, was at a, um, I was at a restaurant the other day with my daughter. And we're doing a lot of, you know, limiting sugar for sort of obvious reasons. And my daughter wanted a, a little, a bowl of applesauce at the restaurant. And I said, well, you know, we did have a little bit of ice cream today, so whatever, right? And she turned to me and she said, well, is there any sugar added to the fruit? And I said, no, I think it's just applesauce. And she said, okay. Would I be allowed to have a piece of fruit when I got home? And I said, well, sure. And I said, well, since fruit doesn't have sugar added other than the sugar that's in it, and since the applesauce doesn't have sugar in it, what is the difference between me having applesauce here and me having a piece of fruit at home? The texture's different? The taste's different? No, no, but in terms of the sugar content. Well, if it's the same apple, then it should be the same. I said, you know what? You make a great case. I cannot think of a counter argument. Let's go get you your applesauce. Hmm. Right. So she is able to affect her will with rational arguments to somebody who's, quote, in authority. Right. Hmm. And so when she grows up, she's going to be able to think, OK, well, I should have some effect on things in authority because I have good arguments. Whereas if you're brutalized and controlled and beaten and screamed at by your parents, the idea that you're going to be able to impose moral rules on anyone in authority which is basically the essence of libertarianism or, or voluntarism, is incomprehensible to you. It's literally like asking someone to speak Mandarin if they've never even heard the language. It doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I guess like in my in my own case, you know, I I was introduced by to libertarianism literally because like you know first I went to a local school in which like, things went went like very very badly and to the point like when I was in grade two, my parents decided no, you cannot go to a, a local school like you know then they just like spend the money to put me in a private school things got slightly better but you know i mostly avoid like the bullies and stuff by like just hiding out in the library and guess what i found in the library a book about classical liberalism and like at, when i was in grade five and i just read it i said yeah yeah this is great yeah you know 
yeah, so that's how it started. But you know, I guess like you know, I don't want to sound like something, but I, I'm some. I guess I'm somewhat of a mutant, like compared to like everyone else, because that's how I genuinely feel. Like it's like at work, it's like oh, I work at again like um, this private school place. I talk to like the expat teachers. I have more in common with them, even if like a lot of them are like leftists, compared to like my fellow Chinese coworkers, which we have like nothing to talk about, even though we speak the same language and everything. It's like. Oh yeah, no. Listen, I I worked with a uh, a Japanese woman. Uh, I lived and worked with her when I was gold panning and prospecting uh, up north. And I, I, you know, we we would be sitting there gold panning. Uh, sometimes we would do it in the bush, but in the winters, of course, we'd go into a warehouse. We'd be sitting there gold panning, and I remember asking her questions. You know, because I was as philosophical then as I am now when I was uh, eighteen or nineteen, and. She had no interest in it whatsoever. It wasn't hostile. It wasn't like, oh, we can't talk about that. She just, nah. No, it didn't. It didn't land for her in any way that interested her at all. And you know, I'm obviously that's not a representative sample or anything like that. But uh, in my experience, uh, it's just like on this sort of East Asian mindset. It's just not what is exciting or interesting or motivating or doesn't doesn't juice them so to speak yeah and like uh, it's like one of the things that really annoys me is like you know i have like you know some um, well, some, um how do you say it? Like, some friends like they're like over, they're, they're from overseas like they're westerners like when i tell them about this or chat about this like the polite ones might go well does that make you you know considering a thing situation in hong kong is your free market system working maybe you should reconsider your views to like some outright boasting saying where is Milton Friedman now, huh? Like, yeah. And yeah, I'm just saying, you know, this is like, you know, yeah. It's like we do like have like some of like the higher standards of like, you know, maybe not like because of like the real estate prices, but we do have like a good standard of living. I am getting a like, you know, a decent job considering the economic climate. But yeah, you know, like sometimes when you get this, like, you know, like, yeah, where's your Milton Friedman now? Is it working? Oh, like, have you considered your position? You know, like, is, are, are people so rude because like they're like being trained in this, you know, like dog eat dog system? And like, Things like that. It's like, right. No, and I, I get that. And look, this is why, this is why, okay. So first of all, no, nobody knows why, even though East Asians have a higher IQ, they tended throughout history to be less innovative than Europeans, particularly in sort of the last five or 600 years. As you know, you know, I'm not trying to lump everyone together, of course, but you know, there was a significant amount of stasis, of stasis in East, East Asian societies for literally thousands of years, right? I mean, the ancient Chinese had incredible knowledge. They had, um, you know, obviously hugely complicated mathematical practices. Uh, they knew the movement of the planets and the moon, and they could predict eclipses, and they had gunpowder, and they had fiat currency, and they had entrance exams for their bureaucrats uh, thousands of years ago. Like, incredible. But, but they never had the breakthrough that Europeans had sort of 18th to 19th to 20th centuries. And the question as to why, I mean, nobody knows. East Asians do have less testosterone than uh, people uh, of, of Caucasian descent, as people from Caucasian descent have less testosterone than, than blacks. So maybe there's a sweet spot where you have enough testosterone to be innovative, but not so much testosterone that uh, there seem to be other dysfunctions uh, in, in general. So no, no, but nobody knows for sure. Uh, but this, of course, is, is an interesting question, which is it, it can't just be IQ. It's IQ plus. 
X, you know, and I think that the most important part of that X is good parenting. Um, but that, of course, is a very tough thing to move or to change in society. So I don't know how to there's no I don't think there's any magic key. But it also shows to me that, of course, if most Europeans came to uh, North America, they'd probably vote socialist. And uh, it sounds like a lot of people from Hong Kong, if they came to North America, they'd vote socialist, too. So maybe we're back to Jeb Bush that right now, or at least for the last while, there's no constituency for the truth. Uh, and of course, I'm aiming to change that because I have no hope or optimism, which means I have to rely on brute effort and willpower and courage and eloquence and um, all that. So I don't know. I mean, there there may be good reasons. I think maybe some biological factors, but I would put a lot of it down to um, uh, the brutality of the parenting around you has probably stripped a lot of individuality and individuation out of the people. It has stripped a lot of the empathy out of people. And so they're very intelligent but they're not interested in universals because if you don't have empathy, you don't get universals, which means that philosophy, as I said, is useless. Yeah, um, I guess like in their case, it's like um, about like voting socialists. It's like I just have that like, people are like tell me it's like you know you should go like, yeah you you are into the freedom stuff and you know you should go to the U.S. you should go to like, Europe and well this is like just for me I don't know because again like I, I mentioned earlier in Hong Kong like we we're not getting those kind of things and I'm not. Okay, but but so start. Sorry to interrupt. I get that. So start talking about parenting and childhood with people, and and call back to this show. Ask them what their childhoods were like, how they were disciplined, how they were punished, uh, and ask them what they think of it, and then call us back if you'd like to be our our mole in the uh, Hong Kong multiverse of childhoods. Uh, I'd love to know. It's like, I, I guess I can use the example of my own father. He's like, you know, compl as you would say, like a complete R. He's like, he grew up in like this really poverty stricken environment, like really like, but well, the, my grandfather, he told me like, he's like the most like libertarian person. Like if you say it's like un the most uneducated libertarian person, he's like illiterate. He taught himself English and stuff. But for him, like, yeah, he was working class, but he said that, you know, he actually did something that no one else in like, his like poor environment did. He spends time with my dad and it takes him hiking and, you know, make sure he goes through his education and stuff. So, yeah. So and my father, he is like really high performing, really like successful person. And yeah. So, so I guess like, yeah, it does make a difference. Like, you know, just like spending time. So I, uh, with kids. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, but I think that we have an insight as to why you are able to deal with universals because you were treated more gently than most of your peers, which means you were treated with empathy, you learned empathy, which means universals are of value to you and you empathize with yourself in the future, which is the necessary precondition for fighting for freedom. And so um, if you can promote the kind of child rearing that you experienced, that'll do a lot more than these futile intellectual arguments to people who don't even speak the language you're speaking of emotionally. Yeah. So I guess I just approach people and say that, you know, treat your kids better, you know, make sure they don't hit them. Like, they don't do this, sir. Like, yeah, just, yeah, just small things. Just, you know, like, just be kind to people. And I guess like that does like one of like the things I guess I fantasize about is like just small acts of kindness in Hong Kong like they're like rare. It's in, like just just holding a door open for someone. Like sometimes I do that. People look at me like saying, "Huh? Like what? Like you're holding a door open and like just help people pick up stuff. They think you're gonna. They think you're you're stealing their stuff until you hand it to them. But I think like, just small things like this. If there's a kid nearby, they see it and say, "Yeah, there's good people. There, there's good people in this society." Like, you know. So just I guess. Well, maybe I'm just thinking that's... No, no, just, I'm, I'm sorry, and i got to go mind the show down because uh, 
I got to eat. Um, <laughs> blew right through my lunchtime. It's been three and a half hours. So, um, yeah, but if you would do us a favor, go go talk to some people and um, make some notes of the conversation. Give us a call back and give us a sense of what childhood is like for people in Hong Kong. I'd be quite fascinated to hear about that. The name of the book, The Origins of War in Child Abuse. It escaped me before, but it's back now. And uh, Mike had a point that the counter argument to apple sauce is uh, we had Robert Lustig on the show years ago that juice and crushed fruit spike insulin a lot more, like a big vat of juice spikes your insulin a lot more than eating an orange because the, the, the pulp slows down the intake of, of sugar. That is a very good point. I actually thought of that at the time. The problem is I haven't gone through all the science of that for her yet. And so I can't introduce that during, I have to always do things beforehand. I, I try not to uh, bring in new information while we're in the middle of a conflict when she has old information, because that just sounds like new information is a way of winning the debate. So with the information and knowledge that she was working from, she was completely right. And I do have a note in my brain to bring up some of the uh, stuff, but I need some diagrams and draw it out and all that kind of stuff. So that's a very good point. Thanks, of course, everyone so much for listening. Always a great pleasure to chat with you. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Donate, donate, donate to help us out. Please do it right now. Don't wait. Okay. I'm assuming you're back. If I'm doing that now, fdrurl.com slash Amazon to help us out. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful day. And um, it was great to have our inaugural daytime show. Yes, you're welcome, Europe. And uh, have yourself a great, great week. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>